Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Well, I certainly hope so, too. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned, Now Playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about No Time to Die, starring Daniel Craig, Rami Malek, Lea Seydoux, Lashana Lynch, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Jeffrey Wright, with Christoph Waltz and Ray Fiennes as M. Directed by Carrie Fukunaga. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is Arnie, the Now Playing co-host who has no time to die, or how else would these shows get out? Indeed. Gentlemen, it's been unbelievable ride here with James Bond. We are now at the end of an era. I am so glad to be back with you guys to discuss the final Daniel Craig James Bond and finally end this long James Bond series with you. What a great way to end it. Didn't we do this last time? Wasn't last time the last Daniel Craig James Bond? He said he'd rather slit his wrists than do another James Bond. He did say that, but then he backwalked it on that Being James Bond documentary saying people were asking me like two hours after I finished filming the first one he was being hyperbolic and so last thing you want to do after you run a marathon and say yeah i'll run another marathon and that's how he walked it back but yes he certainly said he didn't want to do that don't forget arnie he broke his leg during that one he had a he's you know he sprained his ankle he's been through the ringer and back with this bond thing i can only imagine that he didn't want to go back to the pain of doing a james bond movie physical and mental and of course he's older now too i mean when he started this 2006. I mean, we all are, but yes, it's one thing to break your ankle when you're still late 30s. But yeah, after 50, man, getting out of bed sometimes is hard here for me. I'm approaching that age. And so, yes, one more Daniel Craig sounded right. Something to give a conclusion to a movie that really left us hanging and a movie I really overrated. I gotta say, guys, I went back and did the Craig era retrospective to prepare for this podcast. And for some reason, it's just this popular myth that Quantum of Solace is the bad one, but it's Spectre. I'm telling you, oh, yeah. Spectre mm-hmm. is the low point of the Craig series. I don't know why I recommended that movie. It's flat out not good. Well, I rewatched it as well. I rewatched Skyfall and I rewatched Spectre because I knew Spectre was going to tie into this one. There's no way it couldn't based on the history. And I knew that Leah Sado was back in it. But I did not watch Quantum of Solace. I actually texted you, Stuart, and said, the last thing I want to do is rewatch Quantum of Solace. It, that movie is just no fun to watch. And I just don't enjoy it, even though I've recommended it all three times that <laughs> I've reviewed it, it seems. Because it's it's a good movie, I just don't enjoy watching it. I actually enjoyed Skyfall a lot this last time. And Spectre went down easier, but the flaws of the movie are apparent, especially in that last act. And I went back also, I'm not the Bond fan here, but... These Craig Bond films are the only ones that have been really tightly coupled. And since it's been five years since the last Bond film, I was like, okay, I need to go back. I need to 
readjust and refresh myself on these. And man, not being the Bond fan, Casino Royale and Skyfall are just incredible movies. No matter what you think of James Bond, those two stand out of all the James Bond retrospective series as just being good movies, let alone good Bond movies. Quantum of Solace was whatever. And yeah, Spectre, I think the reason Daniel Craig really didn't slash his wrists is, do you really want that to be the film you go out on yeah yeah we want a conclusion and we want something better like that's definitely my hope coming back to this is what can they do to improve what they're saddled with because there's a lot there starting with christoph waltz's blofeld that i'm like this isn't working the girl that bond is in love with so much he's walking away from mi6 I'm not feeling it. Like, they're going to have to address that. They're going to have to bring those cast members back. But they're going to have to convince me of things they didn't convince me of, Inspector. And so that's the challenge for our new director. How familiar are you guys with Kerry Fukunaga? I've seen it. <laughs> that's the extent of it. And by it, and the way I'm inflecting it, I mean Stephen King's first it. Well, he didn't get to do that. That was the movie he was going to make, and then they took it from him. He wrote it, and nah. he's credited with writing it. It was taken away from him. He ended up getting credit for it, but his vision of that and what he wrote was not made at all. Like, that's just there by contract. He is not responsible. He had an entirely different vision for that movie. So if you saw it, you don't know Kerry Fukunaga. Then I don't know Kerry Fukunaga. And I don't either. You didn't see the season of True Detective everyone went crazy for, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson? No. No. Oh, okay. Well, I highly recommend that you do that. That's probably why he got this gig. He also did an Idris Elba movie, Beast of No Nations, for Netflix, which was my favorite movie of that year. And he did a series called Maniac, has nothing to do with the slasher series, with Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. Love that miniseries. You know, I looked him up, and I saw there was a Maniac TV series or miniseries, and I got all excited thinking that the Elijah Wood movie got a continuation, and no, it turned out not to have anything to do with it, and my interest vanished. It's fantastic. Again, everything that he's made has not only been good, it's been incredible. So what happened here? <laughs> well, I guess that's what we're here to discuss, but yes, him coming on board sent a real signal that, thank God, we're going to have different creative hands. It seems like the problem really was that Craig was unhappy on set, and I don't know whether that was the Broccoli's or whether that was Sam Mendes, the director of that film, or what, but knowing that there's going to be someone that has made great works of art stepping in here and taking it away from people who did not do such a great job last time, I'm jazzed. In that documentary, he was very complimentary of Sam Mendes because they were old friends from, I think, Rhodes Perdition, right? They first met there, and then he brought him for Skyfall. I think part of it was that Craig was in immense pain for the most of the shoot, and they had to reconfigure, like, an opening sequence. He couldn't walk. He had a broken leg, but they either delay the shooting or they don't, right? So they had to do it. And then the second part of it was Craig was all about the broccolis, Barbara and Michael G. Wilson. So, well... We kind of have to be, right? I mean, like, get a couple drinks in him and talk privately. Maybe he won't be, because I always feel like people have shit to say about the people that own James Bond, the Broccoli family. And, you know, no one likes broccoli. So, like, why would they like anything they do? 
But don't forget, Fukunaga is like a pinch hitter here. This was Danny Boyle's Bond film. Mm. And Danny Boyle walked away, and the Broccoli's had literally 30 days to begin production, or the Bond film wasn't going to meet its release date. Now, (laughs) joke's on them, COVID. (laughs) Release dates, yes. Boyle has said, very plainly, he had his script... The Broccoli's had their script, and he walked away not liking the script the Broccoli's were demanding he make, and so he quit, and with no time to lose, they brought in Fukunaga. So, he's a hired gun and a running gun for this one. Sure. He's also the first time he's ever big budget movie, right? I don't think Jane Eyre was a giant production with money and stuff, right? It's kind of a costume drama. So, maybe also part of that is that he's ever worked in this kind of environment before with this much at stake, with this much money, with all these stunts and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and look at Marvel. Like, look at who they hire to direct those new films. Like, they're not directors that have commanded big blockbusters before. They're people usually that have done little indies and TV series. And so you really do get the impression that this is a factory. The Broccoli's are in charge. The director is hired to do their will and if that doesn't go well yeah they usually part i mean it's the reason why we've never gotten a christopher nolan bond movie he wants to do it badly but when you have too much ego when the director thinks they should have all the creative control i think they always end up loggerheads and so danny boyle wanted to do probably danny boyle things with bond and they said no this is not lock stock this is 007 absolutely hired guns are what the broccolis need and want but at the other hand they've had some good luck with like a Martin Campbell, right? They had a good luck with Sam Mendes, right? Sam Mendes and Martin Campbell come in with visions. What is happening in the Craig era is not only did they luck into, you know, a good Bond, an actor that embodied the role in a new dramatic way, but they suddenly had the money and the goodwill, you know, everyone has grown up watching Bond movies now, that they have all of these people eager to do a Bond movie that might normally not sign up for just any action film. They wouldn't do this for Fast and Furious. They wouldn't do it for Marvel. But yeah, you have uh, Sam Mendes, Oscar-winning director, willing to say, I'm going to put my talent on that. There's just more Oscar gold these days around a Bond project. It has respectability that these films frankly never had when they were certainly in the Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, really even Pierce Brosnan phase. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's actually a problem with these past few movies is that you have a Ray Fiennes, you have Jeffrey Wright, you have Ben Whishaw, all these actors who are known, but if you get them in these movies and you don't use them, like you have old M, old Q, old Moneypenny, they didn't do anything but their one or two scenes. Every once in a while, M would have a couple of extra scenes in a movie, right? But now you have Naomi Harris, you want to use her. So she had a bigger role in Spectre, she had a bigger role here than she normally would if she was a Moneypenny, if she was Lois Maxwell. So I think that's actually been a saddle because all these big actors, you have to give them something to do. Naomi Harris was in this movie? Could have fooled me. I thought she was too busy filming Venom. <laughs> but she was in this movie more than Money Penny normally would be. Correct. Money Penny gets 30 seconds with a hat thrown on a, a rack, and that's it. A joke, and, and you're gone. And I hear what you're saying, Brock, and I think you're right. It would go a long way to explaining why this is the longest James Bond movie ever made, by quite a lot. Two hours and 43 minutes. We watched James Bond age on screen. (laughs) (laughs) They said they got all the time in the world. They mean it. (laughs) 
he has plenty of time to die in that, but I don't mind a long movie. You know, these days it feels like epics are becoming more and more common. The only problem I had with the runtime is I did see this movie twice and it's kind of hard to fit two viewings of a three hour movie into two weekdays. I ended up taking a day off work because I had no time to watch it without that. And so I saw it the first time at an It's the Dolby Atmos DLX. It's, you know, kind of a faux IMAX with great audio. I got to see it there, me and three of my closest strangers. It was a theater that seats 200, and there were four of us. I went back on Friday. It was more crowded. There were like 20 of us. Nice. So I had to go by myself on a 7 o'clock on Thursday with six people in the theater. Not a lot of people there. Yeah. I saw this twice as, as well, and Thursday by myself, opening night, IMAX. But I wasn't going to see it without mom. This is one of the rare franchises where she likes it as much as I do. And she wanted to go to theater. She hadn't been to a movie in several years, way before we've been in pandemic. And this was just a big enough draw. She loves Casino Royale and Skyfall enough to put on that mask. But I got to ask you guys, did you go in spoiler free? Because I couldn't believe it. Before I was like headed out the door on Thursday night, going to go see Bond. I'm like, are you excited about seeing it tomorrow? And she goes, yeah, well, I know he's dead. And I was like, what? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, he dies in this one. Oh, so wait. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm like, I wish I could rewind the last 30 seconds so I could have just walked out the door. I went into this movie having that spoiled. That's like this episode of The Simpsons when Homer walks out of Empire Strikes Back and tells Marge, I can't believe Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. All the people (laughs) online are like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. I unfortunately found out about the other 007 beforehand, like a year ago. Yeah, that seemed evident. Even in the trailers, we kind of guessed that she was... Oh, I didn't watch the trailers, Stuart. This is a James Bond movie. I don't watch trailers for things I know I'm going to see. So I didn't watch any of these trailers, nothing for this movie, because I wanted to go and spoil the free. But unfortunately, I had forgotten it in that it wasn't front of mind. But as soon as I saw her, I'm like, oh yeah, she's the new 007 and blah, blah, blah. But I did not know the ending. Thank God, if I had heard that beforehand, I probably would have been very upset. Sorry you had that happen to you, Stuart. Mm. I went in so spoiler-free, I knew nothing about this movie. What's funny is, had this come out when it was supposed to, back in 2020, I probably knew a lot of what you guys are saying about the new 007 and things. I paid a lot more attention to the trailers back then. Now, this movie has been intended to come out for so long that I kind of just started to get numb to people talking about it. I'm like, is it really coming out this Mm -hmm. time? And like this (laughs) mythical unicorn. Yeah, it was a vaporware movie to me. So I went in knowing Rami Malek, an actor who, (laughs) it's funny, when we reviewed Need for Speed, I'm like, who's this guy? Yeah. And then he won an Oscar, and I did discover Mr. Robot, a series I strongly recommend. I can't believe how much I recommend that series. And now I'm really impressed with Rami Malek as an actor, and I'm so curious to see what he would do here. I came in knowing he was wearing a Phantom of the Opera mask, I guess and he was the villain Mm -hmm. and daniel craig was back for the last time and i couldn't have told you another thing and in fact hit me as the movie was starting i'm like i have no idea what i'm about to watch 
Hmm, interesting. I, always the most fun way to see a movie. Maybe I not agree. the best, but... The less you know about any movie, the more you like it. Like, if you watch a really middle-of-the-road movie, but like if it's on cable one day and you just turn it on, it's so much better you enjoy it because you're able to take the ride the director intends you to take. Whether it's a good movie or not, it's superfluous. You have a better time watching that movie because you have all the surprises coming to you. I'm going to totally disagree with that. 100% <laughs> disagree with that. I think that knowing what you're in for helps set an expectation and a mood. And if you know a little bit about the story, then the opening teases can be that much sweeter. I think it's like anticipation when you order off a menu and you know the beef bourguignon is coming and your mouth is salivating for that beef bourguignon versus you're at somebody's house and you have no idea what they're serving, so therefore you don't give a shit. I really think a good trailer that doesn't spoil the end, an Infinity War trailer, can make watching that movie so much sweeter. Guardians of the Galaxy is a good example of what you're talking about. The trailer there made me want to see it and had me enjoy the movie going in with the right mindset. I agree with that point of view, but I've had so many instances where I've watched a movie completely cold. I had a really great time watching an average to a good movie. Even if I didn't like the movie itself, I kind of enjoyed taking that ride. So I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. So I've had plenty of good experiences both ways, I should say, but sometimes seeing a movie we know nothing about can be a really fun ride. And I'm going to just say that, yes, it does create expectations, and that can be a good or a bad thing depending if the movie lives up to them. And I definitely had ideas about what this movie was going to be that it ended up not being. And I will say that there were things that were not spoiled for me. There were things that are going to happen in this plot that I didn't know about. So, Arnie, why don't you ruin it for all the listeners? We can get into it. No Time to Die picks up right after the end of Spectre, with Daniel Craig's James Bond having quit MI6, and he's on a lustful holiday with previous film's Bond girl Madeline Swan, played by Leah Seydoux. Madeline pressures Bond to get closure by visiting the tomb of Vesper Lind, but when he does, Bond is ambushed by Spectre agents. These baddies are led by one-eyed Primo, who has a bionic second eyeball. Bond escapes, but believes Madeline betrayed him to Spectre. He puts her on a train and says goodbye forever. We then jump forward five years. Spectre boss Blofeld, again played by Christoph Waltz, still has a hard-on to kill Bond, so his convoluted way to do it is to corrupt MI6 scientist Valdo Abrushev, played by David Denick. Under the watch of Bond's old boss M, played by Ralph Fiennes, Abrushev developed Project Heracles, nanotech that spreads like a disease, but it's only fatal to those targeted by DNA. Blofeld thinks that's the best way to kill Bond. <laughs> But Blofeld didn't count on not being the bad guy in this movie. No, that's Safin, played by Rami Malek. Safin's family was killed by Spectre, and Safin's been out for revenge ever since. Safin ordered Obrushev to modify the DNA of the bioweapon, and in one fell swoop it kills every remaining Spectre agent, thus wiping out the last movie. It infects Bond, so when Bond goes to interrogate Blofeld, the Spectre mastermind is also killed by the DNA-targeting bioweapon. Bond is reunited with Madeline at this point, as she was conveniently Blofeld's therapist. And Bond has come to realize Madeline did not betray him to Spectre. More, Madeline has a secret. She's given birth to Bond's now four-year-old daughter, Matilda. Despite Spectre having been destroyed, Safin continues a villainous plot, because he's the bad guy and we wouldn't have a movie if he was done. So Safin takes Madeline and Matilda hostage and absconds to an old missile silo. Safin has had Obrushev convert the old World War II base into a mass producer of Heracles. Bond is reinstated with MI6, and he teams up with the agent who took the 007 designation, Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch. 
The two agents go to the island and Nomi kills Obrushev and gets Madeline and Matilda off the base. Meanwhile, Bond fights and kills Saverin, but not before Saverin injects Bond with Heracles. This strain is meant to target the DNA of Madeline, and thus her daughter as well. As MI6 bombs the old base, Bond stays there and allows himself to be killed, rather than carry a disease that would never let him touch his daughter. And we clearly see Bond die. And Nomi, M, and Q, and Moneypenny raise a glass to Bond as credits roll. But when we start off, Brock, gun barrel sequence. Oh, I was extremely happy. We got the little dots, we got the gun barrel, and I did a little yay. It was in the last one too, if you recall. Yeah, but we've only had him do it twice, so I kind of enjoyed seeing the classic gun barrel sequence as well. You know, if I hadn't done the whole retrospective again, like the done started at Casino Royale and worked my way through to this new movie, if you had told me Mr. White was the key <laughs> to it all and everything was about Mr. White, I would have been, who? Who are you talking about? I was so happy I took that day off work Thursday because I watched Spectre the morning and I went and watched No Time to Die in the afternoon. And this opening scene, I remembered Madeline talking about how this guy had no idea her father kept a gun under the bed and she was showing off her pistol skills on that train. And I'm like, is that what they're showing us here? Or did they forget they already told us this story? But I knew it was the 90s because Madeline's playing with a Tamagotchi and saying, you're fat because you're depressed. Also, CDs were playing instead of MP3s, but yes. Wallace and Gromit are on TV, yes. Lots of things are bringing me back to, what, 20, 25 years ago. The Mr. White connection is funny, Arnie, because I remember back when we reviewed Quantum of Solace the first time, my wife did not rewatch Casino Royale and totally forgot that he, who the person in the trunk was, right? Easily done, by the way. E easily done. And then I don't think he was in Skyfall, but he came back in Spectre. And you always thought, we always thought Quantum was the new Spectre. The fact that it's actually Mr. White who, <laughs> who is to blame for all of this is kind of fun. I, I really do enjoy that. I thought that the actor who played him would have been back for some sort of like videotape cameo like they did for Judy Dench because <laughs> the videotapes are all over the place in this movie. But no, alas, we did not get one more view of him. Mm -mm. Yeah, maybe you remember it. Maybe you don't. Maybe the only important thing to know is this girl will grow up having a thing for Bond because her father was an assassin. And so her daddy complex means I like killers. I like brutes. And brutes and killers like her as well. One thing that I got from the second viewing that I did not get watching this movie the first time, it's so dense, is we're expected to believe that Rami Malek's character, as he storms in here in his white parka and machine gun and Japanese mask, is going to fall in love with little Madeline. And that love will, like, carry him through decades. And he's also supposed to be, like, a late teenager, right? Yeah. Uh-huh, although we do see the mask crack, and I, I don't know if they de-aged Rami or not, because he's, you know, his face has been modeled with uh, disease. He took it some toxin in. He was the only family member, I guess, not to eat enough of the dessert to kill him, but he was poisoned by Blofeld, and now he wants everyone connected with Spectre and Blofeld to be killed. Mr. White is Spectre's assassin, so you killed my family, I kill yours. My problem with this whole scene was, how did he find Mr. White's residence? And how does he have the skills to go there and even think he can take on a Spectre assassin? I have the answer to that. Because he's a Bond villain. <laughs> <laughs> but we're in a different era of Bond, 
Arnie, that Bond villains... Are we? <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, they're doing everything they possibly can to bring in as many Bond things as they can, but keep it very grounded in realism. I'll state my thesis for this review is this movie could have starred Roger Moore. No way. If this movie goes back to so many tropes, from the villain's henchman with the weird disfiguration, to the mottled face, which reminded me of the diamond guy against Pierce Brosnan, to the crazy villain base that was parodied so well in Austin Powers that this movie lives up to the tropes. This no longer feels like we're in the Daniel Craig era. This feels like it could have been Pierce Brosnan, any of them. They actually brought themselves back to that level with Spectre, right? He finally got a new watch last time. He has a cool gadget watch. This time, he actually kills the henchman guy with a gadget. So, yes, a lot of these things are brought back, but they're brought back in a different way than they were in fantastical ways in the eras of Brosnan and Moore. But I'll give you my thesis, if you will. The problem with this movie is that there's no fun here. So there's one scene in this movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit when we get there, that is tons of fun which makes you stand out so much where they're doing everything they can to bring back aspects of Bond, but the one thing they've never been able to bring back except since Casino Royale is the, the feeling of a fun, exciting adventure along with James Bond. And this movie doesn't have that. And so Roger Moore, even in his worst outings, always had a sense of fun and tongue-in-cheek excitement and fun to it. And this one does not have that at all, except for that one scene. No, I, I get it. And I'll, I'll put it out there. I had a problem. Mom had a problem. I, when she walked out of the theater, I turned to mom and said, what'd you think? Too long! <laughs> like screaming it, like in the parking lot. Too long! I was like, okay, mom, anything you like? She, it took her a while to get there. I do think that the complaints come first. Unfortunately for this movie, what's not working about it rises to the surface, and you have to dig a little bit deeper about what is good about it. But just starting here at the beginning... It's not what we would expect. We would expect them setting up something in Bond's past. We would expect them to start in the modern day with him and, you know, his woman, married maybe, in Italy. The fact that we've got to go into her past and see that she has this nightmarish masked man figure. That she is essentially Laurie Strode. She goes to bed at night afraid of some masked killer outside the window coming for her perpetually. The one that slaughtered her mother. The one that she doesn't know who he was was what i want to know is okay she got the gun she shot him cracked the mask saw him pretty good but you know didn't get a full facial recognition i guess years later she's not going to recognize him when he comes to her office but what happened when she falls through the ice of her lake house and he makes the decision to pull her out instead of shoot her or let her drown did he just leave her did he, like, try to romance her? Like, what exchange? They cheat by cutting away and doing a match cut and showing her climbing out of the ocean as a grown woman. I want to know what happened between these two that made it such a thing for Safin to still be thinking about her decades later. I think Safin explained that later on when they met. I didn't get the whole love angle. I got something else out of that. It comes out of nowhere at the very end when Safin is telling Bond we both love her. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah, but he loves her in a different way than Bond loves her. It's a different kind of thing. It's a connection love versus a... I didn't get the romantic love angle. When you try to kill someone, it's the same as loving them, but it's the same deep connection as I think... What they're going to just have. Because he was going to kill her, there's some pathological need to still have her around all the time. Or something. I don't know. If we're talking about problems, 
The problem is not Rami Malek per se. The problem is that Safin comes in early and then disappears. And by the time he comes in, I never get a full grasp on who he is, what he wants, and even what his plot is. As somebody who came in excited to see Rami Malek give a performance without dentures, I am really <laughs> left wanting because he gets so little screen time here. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see The Little Things, the movie that Rami Malek did with Denzel Washington that came out during the pandemic? I wanted to. Good actors in it. I just didn't get a chance. Yeah, so Denzel's in it. Love Denzel. Watch Denzel read a phone book. But you have Rami Malek in this thing who's in a completely different movie. And so if you're thirsty for Rami Malek like I was after doing Bohemian Rhapsody and that came out... I was very underwhelmed by his choices and what he was doing in that Little Things movie. In fact, I was not happy at all with what he was doing in that movie. Oh, yeah, that movie is like a table read of seven. It's like, let's just take that old <laughs> script and we'll just kind of... Re I'm not even going to put a lot of feeling in it. We're just going to just read that and see what happens. But there are scenes in that movie with Denzel with a couple of other actresses that are phenomenal, that it jumps off the screen. The actors are playing off each other and getting stuff with little subtle movements and eye gestures and things that are unbelievable. And every scene is with Rami Malek, the whole, they think deflates. And I got a lot of the same kind of performance from Rami here. And I also saw him in Night at the Museum all those years ago when he had a nothing part as the Egyptian king. But he had the same problem. He looks dead-eyed and un not present. And here I got, I was just not happy with what he was doing at all. So you're saying that you were looking forward and you got didn't get enough of Rami Malek. Unfortunately, yes, the part is underwritten and it's not really his fault in that sense. But I was extremely disappointed with what he chose to do with this character. And I don't know how much longer he's going to be around. I think he's squandering his opportunity to get lead roles. Let's not talk about Rami Malek right now because he doesn't matter for the next hour. Nothing about him <laughs> is going to matter. It's hard to believe. Do you know, I, when I saw this the second time, I paid attention to my watch a lot more. We're going to jump five years later, have another Bond opening scene, and mm -hmm. the credits come in at 30 minutes into this movie you have opening credits. It's 24, but yes. The longest intro of all time, maybe bigger than World Is Not Enough. And I guess I just didn't expect a holdover Bond girl again. I know how the last movie ended, but, you know, they never explained what happened to Christmas Jones either than the next movie. So. You're not getting what this movie is telling you. This woman is special. And I, you don't get it because she's not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have, like, every other woman Daniel Craig has been with more, including Strawberry Fields, the redhead that got slicked up in oil in Quantum, more than what they have going on. I, it, it is a inherited problem from Spectre that we have to see Daniel Craig pour his heart and soul into this woman that he has no chemistry with. So we talked about this at the end of the last movie, right? And it comes up in the scene right here with her and Bond. I thought they were going to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service and kill her right away in the beginning of this movie. Kind of like the Bourne Identity sequel, right? When they killed the girl in the beginning. Because everything was leading up to Bond's in love and he's going to lose his wife, mm -hmm. right? So this entire opening sequence, and he even, he even says we have all the time in the world yeah. right before the action sequence, right? So that's a reference to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And so I'm thinking the whole time, oh, here she goes. Oh, they're in a car. Okay, she's going to get here. Oh, she's going to get it here. Oh, she's going to get it here. The entire freaking time. And so, Arnie, I agree with you. The chemistry is not there, but I thought she's just here to die. I agree with you. I thought she wasn't going to make it through these opening sequences. I mean, he's really still hung up on Vesper from Casino Royale. Yeah. And so how could he make this one a special one when even she knows she's second place to a dead girl in his heart? 
You're right. And again, watch Casino Royale. That is some romantic chemistry. What they have going on in that movie has never been duplicated in any Bond movie. That that movie is just magic, period. It's one of the best like movies I've ever seen. And yeah, the idea that this girl holds a candle, that she hopes that he can go to the gravesite and then burn his note that says, forgive me, while she burns her note that says, masked man, and they can go on and, and live in a future. You got to be kidding. Yeah, you are a one night stand that somehow through timing, I think, just became the girl he couldn't live without. She became the baby mama. That usually helps hook you for life. (laughs) Right. There is a secret, and it will be teased by the trailers. I didn't think she was going to die because I believed that she was being teased as someone who has betrayed Bond. And certainly, when we see Bond go to the gravesite and there's a little octopus card waiting for him, and boom... Suddenly, we are to think that she didn't send him there to get rid of the past. She sent him there to die. Madeline is the daughter of Spectre. So says Cyclops, the funny henchman that wants odd jobs job. What exactly does that bionic eye do for him? I expected it to shoot lasers or have functions. I think it's just a camera. I mean, I thought it would at least be a bomb. It networks to Blofeld. He is nothing but an extension of Christoph Waltz, who's like Hannibal Lecter, trapped in a cell, and yet through this guy, he can have outreach into the world. Here was a part, though, that I really enjoyed about the movie. When the bomb goes off and Bond flies back, the sound design have him, like, being startled, and it was muted, and he, like, we're kind of like the sound is what Bond hears, right? And he's trying to get his bearings and he's out of sorts and these guys are coming for him the whole time for like I mean, like two or three minutes, right? He's completely like, his ringing in his ears and stuff like that. I loved that choice and it really helps us get into the scene. I did too. I absolutely loved it. But I wondered if he was permanently deaf because it really drives home. He doesn't have a ringing in his ears that we get to hear. It's not like that trope of you just have that loud ringing like you have uh, after seeing ACDC live. Here, (laughs) it's almost nothing except bass playing, at least in my Atmos theater. And so I was wondering how badly his hearing was going to be damaged permanently. Bad enough that he can't call back to the hotel and say, hey, people are coming to kill you. He's got to run there and we get our first action scene. It feels like it's coming late because it's like, you know, 18, 19 minutes of, of movie. But yeah, here we're getting cars trying to drive over him and Cyclops, yeah, getting his eye punched out of him. It was really cool how, for the first part of the sequence, he was still frazzled and out of sorts. He wasn't cool and collected like a Pierce Brosnan would be. And that's the great thing about this Bond. He's more rough and tumble. Like, it reminded me of Casino Royale's opening parkour sequence, that he was more laser-focused because he was going after that guy and he wasn't hurt. But here he was hurt, so Craig is playing that he's out of sorts while doing all the James Bond stuff, like jumping off a bridge with a cable or jumping a motorcycle up onto a roof, even though it was a CGI face of Daniel Craig on a stuntman. It was awesome. My favorite moment of this whole chase comes where he's chasing Cyclops on foot and doesn't hear the car coming up behind him and very conveniently but it's still cool there just happens to be this stone outcropping that you don't want to hit with your car you got to be very careful where you drive on this bridge and he (laughs) hides behind the outcropping and the car flips over it I liked that moment a lot yeah the stunt work has always been top notch in the Craig era and I do feel like yeah this is a good one because they've gone to some actual old city it really like you can feel the they're there part of it when we get back into the aston martin and they're driving around and all of that stuff here's the thing though 
I went in thinking, trailer told me, she's got a dirty secret. She is a betrayer of Bond. But once I'm seeing the scene actually unfold and like Blofeld's calling her and going, thank you, darling, for being evil. (laughs) I'm like, this is obviously a setup. She is not evil. She is being framed like she has betrayed Bond, but she has not. And he's overreacting and throwing her on the train. And he ought to just take five minutes, cool off, and then ask some questions. I blame the actress for that because the way she playing it is so hurt that there's no way she betrayed him. There is absolutely no duality in her character. None. It's obvious. Right. But what's fun about this is that Craig got hoodwinked by Vesper and Vesper's grave just blew up. So the betrayal of Vesper might still be on his mind. Yeah. Then you have this character here with this whole thing. My favorite part of the sequence, even more than what we just talked about, was they're surrounded. They're in the Aston Martin and Bond just sits there and let her get shot in the bulletproof car. Mm. He lets both of them get (laughs) shot to death. Yeah. But for anybody else, because he needs a minute to let her feel what is going on in his head and the situation that she has put him in. It was wonderfully awesome, very dark, very broody, very great Daniel Craig Bond. Then he does Bond stuff, gets out of there and puts her on the train. But I loved that scene. Craig is back. Like what was obvious when you watch Spectre is Craig was not there. Like he was going through the motions, but I felt like he was giving a pretty checked out performance. And here I'm feeling that engagement. I'm feeling that wrestling of like, I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be emotional with a woman because this is always what they do to you. They betray you. And you're right. It's all Craig that and his relationship with Vesper that he's working through right now. When I look at Sado, I'm like, meh. I wish it weren't you. I mean, again, when she's on the train, he says, well, you'll never see me again. I wish that were true. I know she's coming back. But damn it, I'm like, oh, if only. If only this could, like, pull out of the station, derail, and explode. I would be like, yay. And I thought this was the end of her. Again, we talked about Brock and I We thought she was going to die. Well, going away on a train like this, I didn't. I did. I came in blank. I thought this was the last we'd see of her and we'd get some new Bond girls. But notice what she did there. When he says, you're never going to see me again, you'll never know how I end up, she clutches her stomach. They're telling you right there that that secret that she had to tell him, that she just couldn't get out in all of that chasing, is that she's got a bun in the oven. There's also a point, she says, there's something I need to tell you, and he says, I bet there is. Mm-hmm. Like, so she was going to tell him right there or something, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say I'm pregnant when you're, you know, going 70 miles an hour down a cement staircase. I I get that. That's how my wife told me, Stuart. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, there was no time to tell. Uh, Maybe that should be the title of this. (laughs) He really does throw her on the train, and that is on him that he didn't, like, cool off and get answers, because that's what you would want to do. What the hell did just happen? How did Spectre find me? Are you connected to him or not? He just, yes, is triggered into throwing her away, and finally, you know, 24 minutes in, we get our Bond credit sequence. Naked ladies with rose tattoos and DNA spirals of guns firing, and Billie Eilish. She's doing the song. I know a little bit of Billie Eilish. I do have a 12-year-old in the house. I didn't hate the song. The DNA spirals confused the heck out of me until, obviously, later in the movie, it kind of, like, clicked why it's there. Vesper gets another drop in the opening credits. I mean, that has to be a record, right? She's, like, I think four of them. That's amazing. I was really happy that we got a traditional Bond opening sequence. It just surprises me every time we get them with Craig that we get these traditional Bond aspects. And the song this time was a, a nice throwback. I think my favorite one since... I think I like this opening sequence. Do I like Billie Eilish? Duh. 
Of course I do. I I could yes. not get enough of Bad Guy. I guess that was what, 2019, summer of 2019? I had that song almost on a loop. Like the song would end and I would want to hear that song again. Her songs since have been good, but not as memorable. Mm -hmm. And this one here, yeah, I like it. It's no Skyfall, but I like it. You wanted Bad Spy. Yes, I did. <laughs> I think after Madonna, they were shy of making a dance song. Like, I think they are like, we don't want that. And particularly for this one, there is so much death imagery. Even here, like, you know, Bond drove through a funeral and at a gravesite and major characters are going to die along the way. I think that they wanted the Billie Eilish that does those slow undanceable numbers the one that's suicidal that the parents worry that their children are going to be influenced by she's a little bit past her prime i feel like she was probably hot when they signed her but because this movie took so long to come to theaters it kind of feels anticlimactic i heard this song two years ago it made more sense in the context of this opening credit sequence but not one of my favorite tunes unfortunately i wanted it to be better than it was they've turned up her vocals is one thing if you listen to the song on its own there's a lot of interesting things going on with the orchestra and the background noise here we're getting that Billie eilish mumble and she is kind of famous for that she does sing too she does try to hit a high note here and, and does pretty well with it but i guess she does embody the theme of this movie which is maybe possibly problematic it is going to be slow and it is going to be death obsessed and maybe you wanted something more fun too bad. Well, I think it gets pretty fun right after the opening credits because there is a comedic genius in this movie and he is played by David Densick. I cannot laugh harder when he is on screen in these early scenes and the co-workers are making fun of putting bioweapons in his lunch. He is just so picked on. It's like a high school loser being bullied only in a workplace for MI6. And this guy, the fact that he's going to survive this opening scene, which I never suspected, and be around for the rest of the time, he is our comedic relief. He's Boris from Goldeneye. Yeah, I can see that. The name is Valdo Oberchev, and what we get here at the beginning is that, yes, even though it's a skyscraper, they work on top secret, like, viruses and such. He is tipped off by Safin. Rami Malik is calling. We don't see him, but Safin says Spectre is coming, and at this point, I'm thinking, oh, they're in cahoots. He's saying the plan we've had is that they're going to pretend to threaten you, but you're going to give my men your virus. It's more clear second viewing, obviously. We hate Spectre. We're going to screw over Spectre, but go with them and then switch out what they want you to work on with something that will kill them all. And they will kill you, swallow this thumb drive, and we're going to make sure you stay alive through this. So he not only hates Spectre, but he has a very vested interest through cowardice to do what Saffron says. And his cover for getting a phone call from Saffron, I like animals! <laughs> I mean, it's broad. I don't know if I love it like you, Arnie, but it's. I, I agree that Bond is a mix. This is not a Roger Moore Bond movie, but sometimes you do want that goofiness to poke through, and here it is. Like, if you really did want to see the kinds of stuff I loved in Bond movies when I was a child, yeah, you would definitely cling on to Daldo here. And he's got a fun exit, too. Like, they put a suit on him, and he falls down this elevator shaft and is caught by magnets. Oh, the weapon they dropped that shoots the magnets is awesome so cool after fast and furious i believe magnets are magic 
So I totally <laughs> believe this could happen. I would try it. I mean, it's better than the bouncy castle. It's the next level. The only thing I didn't like about it was it's like, oh, magnets. Yes, magnets, dude. We all know it's magnets and you're a freaking scientist. No, children didn't know. You know, they, this is for the kids. <laughs> The kids are watching this comedic fun stuff with the three co-workers and then every other person dies by like shot in the head like Beverly Hills Cop. Boom, 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 boom. And, like it's really gets dark very quick. Another thing we're getting here is they quickly cut to MI6 and Mallory is dirty. Like I don't know that they've ever played with it this much before. Usually England may have done some kind of dirty stuff, but they're really saying that he broke international laws and is responsible for developing this weapon. He made a bioweapon that since 1973 we've signed treaties saying no country should make. And he's covering, he's not telling the prime minister. Like everyone is calling. He knows when that lab blows up, he's like, it's a gas leak. I'm not even going to talk to you, Money Penny, about it. Where is 007? A funny little catch that, you know, like you think, oh, we're going to cut to Daniel Craig. Of course, he's going to pull Bond out of retirement. It will take a little while to realize there's the new 007. He's not even wanting Daniel Craig. But we do cut immediately to Daniel Craig. Where's 007? He's fishing. Fishing with a harpoon gun, which is a throwback to Thunderball or License to Kill or whatever other James Bond. No one really uses harpoon guns anymore. So that that was kind of cool. And yeah, this is where we get to see that Daniel Craig is worked out for this part. Like he's going to do a naked shower scene and, you know, give us a little bit of beefcake. And I don't know if you could say that Daniel Craig ever looks happy, but he does look content in life after Spidem. Like he does look like someone that has managed to find a little paradise in Jamaica. Kind of like Ian Fleming did. You know, they didn't say it was flat out Jamaica. I had to figure that out myself. But clearly because of the connections to James Bond, Jamaica makes sense. We did see him in retirement before, more or less, in Skyfall, if you recall. But here he does seem more content. Something about his way. He's not drinking with scorpions. I mean, there it looked like he was daring death. Laying low, yeah. Like, I don't think he was living. He was, like, yeah, hiding. Yeah, here it looks like he has gotten a life, a lonely life, and there's still some spy things in his life. He still has secret compartments in his drawers, but... Yeah, and everyone knows where he is. Like, it's very clear, like, he'll drive away from his home, and the new 007 is just sitting there with the stereo system blasting reggae, watching him go by. And Felix has left cigar ash all over his house, letting him know that the CIA wants him, even if MI6 does not. Even Cyclops is here. He doesn't end up doing anything. But Bond is always being watched by Spectre, by the British, and by the Americans. And the Americans are the ones that end up recruiting him to find Valdo. They know Valdo is on Cuba, and they want Bond to just take his yacht and sail over there. And I just want to drive home. I mean, we say 007, we're referring to somebody named Nomi, and we never find out her last name. I think it's Nomi Bond. I don't think any relation to James Bond, but I think that when we have our next Bond film, 007 is going to be her. No way. I'm just calling it out right now. There's zero chance, less than zero chance, that Captain Marvel's side chick is going to inherit this franchise. No way. No way. No way. They've done this before. We remember Halle Berry. They were going to give her a Jinx spinoff. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
The fun of the movie starts for me here when we get to see Felix and his newbie green CIA agent, Logan, who was a lot of fun. Logan. First, I know it's the name of Wolverine, but now this is such a Gen Z name. It only made me think of like Logan Paul, who I innately hate. So I immediately (laughs) didn't trust this guy. Fukunaga had used the actor, his name is Billy Magnuson, to great effect as a villainous character in the Maniac show. Like, he's very memorably a bad guy in that, and it just makes sense. I think... You know, James Bond sees him as a twit, as a fanboy who's like, I love you and I'm such a fan and, you know, looks out of place. He calls him Book of Mormon. (laughs) It was perfect. (laughs) I think we might be able to suspect early on that he is at the very least. I mean, Felix is a good ally, but whoever Felix is working with usually is not helpful for Bond. We know that this guy's going to be a problem. Does Bond get any tail in this movie? No. I have heard the complaint on Twitter, and I didn't realize it, but now I'm starting to wonder, is this woke Bond? Is this monogamous, woke, I'm not going to bed women, I'm not going to have toxic masculinity, they're going to have a woman take my place as 007 Bond? Kind of. I mean, I I don't know if I agree with the connotations of everything you just said, but I definitely feel like what they're telling us is Bond loved Madeline so much, there is no other woman, which is like, come on. Especially the woman he's going to meet in Cuba. My Lord, make that a Bond babe. She is a babe. Indeed. Yeah, even before that, 007 looks like she's going to go to bed with him. And then we find out that she's no me or whatever. And she's there just to say, stay out of Cuba. I'm the one that's going to go get this Russian scientist. I'll put a bullet in your knee if you try that. The good knee. Yeah. I feel kind of bad for Lashana Lynch because on one hand, yeah, they do seem like we're setting you up for the franchise. But is there any way to like this character if she's going to take his number? Like instantly we're set up to exactly take the stance of how dare you try and replace Bond. And I think we do see her very much as an antagonist and not like the next in line when we finally get to Cuba and she's there waving and everything is hinging on crashing some specter party for Blofeld's birthday. I always saw her as, like you said, Jinx. I saw her as a partner. I knew at some point we're not going to go through an entire Bond film, I guess other than License to Kill, with Bond not being part of MI6. And so I saw this as a sidekick. But because we never find out the last name and because there is all this talk that the next Bond should be an African-American or at least a black woman, that I'm like, well, here she is. If she isn't going to be the new Bond, how come we don't find out her last name? I mean, you don't hide that information unless it's important, unless it's going to be Palpatine, or unless at the end of the next movie she's going to decide she's Nomi Skywalker. (laughs) I think you're digging a little deep there. They don't give her a last name because we don't need to know who she is. Yeah, I still don't think they're going to do that. I also don't think she's Bond either, because when Bond eventually does go back to MI6 offices, everyone calls him Bond, Bond, Bond. If her last name was Bond because designation of the last name, I think what you're implying is 007s always have the last name of Bond. Is that what you're implying? More massive coincidence. They wouldn't call him Bond when they saw him later. This is what I would say about expectations. I went into this movie believing he is grooming her to take over. And now, like, seeing that she's kind of the enemy and that really, like, she's just here to, I don't think he is woke. I think she is here to remind him the world has changed and become woke. 
the world is woke and you were not is what she's doing. And so she just feels like a nice feminist touch of like, it sends the signal as this movie does in a million different ways. Bond is on the verge of being irrelevant. What is he going to do to prove to us we still need him? We still love this guy. I just want to throw out there that we've had plenty of other women spies throughout the series. You had the one from License to Kill. We had Triple X in Spy Who Loved Me and Jinx, of course. So it's not the first time we've seen another agent, whether or not they're MI6 or not is not my point. But not equals. Not equal to James Bond. Never a double O, right? Well, Triple X was supposed to be his equal, but we can, we talked about that show already. So <laughs> we already had that conversation. But Anna de Armas, who Daniel Craig was in Knives Out with, lights the screen on fire here. And when I said before, there's some fun in this movie, this is exactly where it is. She is phenomenal in this movie, and she plays this really scared little girl, and then she kills people. You guys are talking about, is this a woke Bond? Well, here we have two women spies just doing their job and taking number, you know, taking names, and whatever that expression is, and Bond is keeping up but clearly the women are in charge here for a majority of this action sequence here and she was just so much fun to watch play this character i love her in this but i feel like she plays it like she's so new she only had a few weeks of training that she needs bond and thus anti-woke spy she needs the man to save her and then it's going to be a punchline later on that she's so competent but in the early scenes she seems like she is completely lost i had no idea that this was also daniel craig's co-star from knives out a movie i hope that with sequels we will get to review here on now playing because i think that's daniel craig's best performance ever that i've seen and this actress apparently can do very good because she's so different here than in that movie where she's so mousy and here when she's introduced in that dress that looks like Mm. something that j-lo would wear to an award ceremony i'm just like whoa it's been a while. I was trying to think, when's the last time we've had a Bond girl be a ditz? Like, they've really, like, shied away. It has to be, like, Timothy Dalton, right? I don't even think Brosnan had. Like, they were all, like, nuclear physicists. And the idea of, like, I think of definitely, like, the man with the golden gun and that good head or whatever, like, falling out of the trunks of flying cars and going, oh! Frankly, it just doesn't play anymore. We've become so accustomed to women having their own action franchises that it seems weird at first that she's going to be like, oh, I forgot to get you your suit and let me just tear off your clothes. Oh, I'm new at this three weeks. We're a little worried at first, but yeah, a couple drinks in her and she ends up being great. As Bond will even call out, you were excellent. Like, this is the movie they could have made. If they weren't making a goodbye and a funeral for Bond, this could be the fun that would really, I mean, talking about a reboot, this would take the franchise in a way that honors those earlier Bond ideas, but still has the realism of the Craig era. I think that, yeah, this Cuba stuff is what I'm really mourning. I really, the saddest about losing this because it's only 20 minutes of the movie and it could have been the rest of the whole Bond franchise. Yeah, when I was thinking Roger Moore, I was thinking the Cuba stuff and I thought she'd stick around longer. I was so disappointed when she said no and then I'm like, oh, he's got to be monogamous to Madeline and that's why we're not going to get more with her. Oh, Madeline. (laughs) That was so disappointing to me because as we've discussed endlessly in this James Bond retrospective, there's two Bond girls. There's usually the early one he beds who dies and then the later one and 
I don't think we've ever had a repeat Bond girl where the later one is the same. I wouldn't want this spy to die necessarily, but I'd like her to hang around longer than Cuba. And she says goodbye. So it's like, oh man, I'm not ready for you to go. Yeah. And she doesn't sleep with him. Again, is she even a Bond girl if she doesn't do that? It's professional. What he admires about her is that she has great killing skills. And when they get to this party, it, we always see it in like the sides, but there's like people in animal masks having orgies. And I thought we were in The Shining for a moment. I thought there was going to be the bear <laughs> given the blowjob. <laughs> it really does look like quite a part. The Bond theme is playing as a conga. And we have all of these, like, basically, it's a Spectre birthday party. So this is, I guess, what it would look like. Old men with young women leering at James Bond as he walks into this trap. Because he's going to stand on this, like, space on the floor right above a dispenser of poison. And we get introduced to the idea of Heracles. That what this Russian scientist invented is a neurotoxin for one. He can tailor it to your specific DNA and you can spray it all over a room and only you will die. You can put poison in a soup that everyone eats from and only one person will die. This is sort of the dream, I think, of spy and cloak and dagger assassination attempts. Is this against the Geneva Conventions? Because I know you mentioned it's a biological weapon, but it's a nanobot. So it's not really a chemical agent. It's not really a viral agent. It's a tiny robot that acts like a viral agent. So I feel like it's riding that line. It will be used like a virus. And certainly the way that Rami Malek's character is going to pervert the idea, I think that it would definitely fall under the, the biological weapons purview. I also think that Nanobond is one of those um, technical gobbledygook things that nobody really understands. So if they say it's a Nanobot versus a chemical weapon for the audience, for example, it might be something for them more than us. And we're supposed to maybe imply that it's a chemical weapon more than it actually is. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But you know what? Another thing I love about this scene is Blofeld is there gloating and cackling. We've seen cutaways to he's still in the cell in London babbling. We think he's crazy. But his eye, if you remember Spectre, he got injured in that explosion. He had his eye replaced with the mechanical one. He is linked with Cyclops. And now Cyclops has the connective eye walking around on a silver tray so that all the Spectre partiers can give well wishes to Blofeld and tell him happy birthday. I just love the image of these bald waiters carrying an eyeball around and these people in animal masks fornicating with women too young for them wishing him happy birthday. Just great. Isn't it on a pillow too? Like it's on a tray on a pillow. <laughs> like a, it's just hysterical to me to see that eye treated with reverence. Yeah, Cuba's a highlight here. It's, it is something to really savor. They get everything right. The action is good. Blofeld actually feels like a good villain. Like, wow, you really set up Bond. He would die. Being spritzed in this way, the plan would go off. Bond does nothing to save himself. It's only because Obachev is really working for Safin, who hates Spectre, that it ends up being a toxin to kill everyone in the room but Bond. Right. The only thing I had to complain about this was that 007, the woman 007, said earlier in the movie that she would shoot Bond in the leg, in the good knee, 
if he got in her way. He got in her way, and she didn't shoot him. And I was hoping that she would, and she didn't do that. To Arnie's point, she's starting to feel more like a co- if not a co-collaborator, at least someone that really isn't going to be antagonistic. Like, in the end, he called her bluff, is what happened. Well, the thing is, she was playing that antagonism still at this part of the movie and the next few scenes later, so I don't think she got there. She didn't come around at this point yet, but I hear your point. The one thing I liked about this Daniel Craig who came out of retirement, yeah, he would have died from that poison. When he came up from the bar all dazzled again when when Paloma... (laughs) That was really a funny moment. Like, he was clearly still able to do it. His He still can shoot, but he's a little rusty. And I kind of liked that, that he came out of retirement. He shouldn't be as clean as he usually is. But as the moment goes on, he keeps on having his Bond moments. It was, it was a really beautiful progression of the character throughout this action scene. Yeah. Everything about Cuba works. I'm just going to put it out there. A highlight of this movie, if you wanted the movie that I thought they were going to give us, the fun movie... This is where the fun movie lives. And yeah, basically it's cat and mouse trying to get the... Who's going to wind up with the scientist? And it looks like Bond wins. It looks like he steals 007's plane and flies out to some fishing junker so that he can hand him off to the CIA. And that's when we realize... It's really because this Russian scientist doesn't recognize that he's been... He thinks that Bond can't be with the British... Because, you know, like, I just saw 007, and I know that she is associated with them. He was fighting her. He thinks he's with Saf and friends. And so he kind of outs Billy Magnuson's Logan character and forces a fight. And we get another death here. Felix. I was shocked Felix died, but I knew this was the end of the series, and he kind of had some rough times in the earlier movies. I was sad to see him go, though. I mean, and to be betrayed by Logan in that way. You know, I'm into the movie at this point, and and I've always liked his Felix Leiter all the way back to Casino Royale, and I just revisited all those films. So to see him go was bittersweet. I kind of think, not knowing how this movie ends, if this is the last Daniel Craig Bond there's no reason you couldn't continue the next Bond with Ray Fiennes. And you might even want to if you wanted to give continuity. But this movie seems to be saying whatever comes next will have no continuity. But at this point, I'm thinking Jeffrey Wright could have continued as Felix and I would have liked that. And no, he's going to bite it. I'm surprised they killed Felix too because of all the things that have happened to Felix and over the years. He looks different every time you see him. But yes, it lines up for the rest of the movie. But at this point in the movie, it was very shocking. And it's supposed to start setting this theme of death that I didn't realize right. we were going to be dealing with so much. Oh, I did. Correct. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> but here, <laughs> Saffron's plot is complete, right? He has killed Spectre. That was what he mm-hmm. wanted to avenge his family. Mm-hmm. There is still Blofeld out there, I guess. Yeah. But I'm very confused by Saffron's motivations for half the movie, and we're almost reaching that midway point. Agree. I don't understand why, if he, after he kills Spectre, what his plan is. And I wonder if it didn't get lost in rewrites and changes and, and arguments and, and what have you. This movie did have, as you said, there was a Danny Boyle <laughs> conception, and then, yeah, this director came in, and the writers that have been working since World Is Not Enough, and then there's this director, and then we also have Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is sort of a comedian. If you saw the Amazon series Fleabag, really funny show, she's responsible for that. I think she's bringing in all of this battle of the sexes tension with the new 007 and Bond, but my point is, it feels like there's a lot of, a lot 
of movies competing for how this is going to go. And once Bond gets back to London, I feel it quickly slipping back away from the fun into the funeral. And yeah, all of a sudden, it's about shaming Mallory. Mallory, you funded this. Mallory's only real defense is, hey, it's an accurate weapon. Who wouldn't want 100% accuracy? If you could set off a bomb and only kill the right people, there would be no collateral damage. Isn't that the best weapon you ever invented? Is it unethical what he's done? It certainly feels like they're going to say Safin changed it. What Mallory was working on is not what Safin is going to pervert it into, which is a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, it's basically like you could set a threshold, right? Because they're going to say, like, you hit the DNA and you could hit all family members because of the DNA. Like, if you set it for Blofeld, they're going to tell Bond, you're lucky you weren't his biological brother or it would have killed you too. So you can hit a target, but you're like going to kill their whole lineage, right? And did we know that? That was like, I didn't catch that the first time. And it was actually like, well, we're going to have this whole complicated plot about like nanobot getting on Blofeld and where did they come from and wouldn't it kill Bond if they're blood relatives? I thought that they were. I thought the last movie was telling us that, but... No, he was a step... Uh, uh, foster brother. That's right. Remember? Because his, okay. his father took him in. And my only thing I don't get about this is, so if it's supposed to be synced DNA, then how did he kill all of Spectre? Because all of Spectre has different DNA, so there must have been a way you can also change it to, what, you're wearing a ring or you've done evil deeds or what is it? No, no, no. They showed my favorite character, Oberweiss, or whatever his name is. Oberchef. Oberweiss. That he dropped the thumb drive, and when the one he pulled up had a lot of DNA in it. So it doesn't have to only have okay, one DNA strand. He put, somehow, I guess all of the people at this party were staying at the same hotel, and he went into every one and pulled hair out of their brushes to get every single Spectre person's DNA. Well, here's the thing, and they really undersell it, but I, what I heard is, and I've heard that this is actually a legit concern, probably why it's not underlined in this movie is they don't want to scare them too bad, but if you've spat in a tube and mailed it away to, like, find out your family tree... Guess mm-hmm. what? Uh-huh. That, all of that information could wind up in the hands of a Saffin. My sister gave me that shit for a Christmas gift, and I did it. And now they're using it to because you know what they're doing is the FBI's taking that and trying to match with cold case DNA for murders. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to foment conspiracy theories or anti-government sentiment. No, this is proven. This is proven. No, I've heard this. I've heard this before, yeah. But I am just saying, I think this movie is lightly treading on the idea that the reason why Safin can get anyone in the world now and pervert this into a weapon of mass destruction is because we've so willingly given away our DNA. What Mallory was going to do was take a fingerprint off a glass, kind of like what they did for Bond here in Cuba. And what Safin wants to do is say, we have data banks and I have thousands and thousands of enemies, I guess. Does he? Yeah, Safin has a big drive later on we see that Q has that whole drive full of DNA I didn't put it together here but you're right so therefore who exactly he's targeting with his DNA it seems kind of random though maybe he just collected a bunch of DNA samples or something like that I don't really get it but I don't really think that matters to this movie very much or something because it's kind of like the guy in Quantum of Solace he's stealing water for some reason and, li- and lives in a hotel with kerosene or whatever the hell that was well it gives Money Penny and Q something to do we wanted to bring everyone back and they're going to spend a lot of time looking at these files and figuring out all of 
the whys and hows of of this uh, nanobot technology, the Heracles project. Right. So while we're talking M and etc. people, M drops the first F-bomb that I can remember in a James Bond movie, if ever. That was pretty fun. Um, I also like that they implied that Q was gay before, but now they flat out said he was, which is great. That felt like a little virtue signaling because it was unimportant. Well, I mean, the actor is gay, and I think it is important to let people know not everyone's straight. And Right, but it's not important to the movie. It becomes important for social movements. And No. Yeah, but when you say virtue signal, I feel like in, in, there's a subtle message there to say, you're sticking something that shouldn't be. I think they're giving dimension to a character that was underdeveloped in previous iterations. And it's just a funny scene because you're right. We don't know his personal life. He doesn't get to have one. That's the whole point. He's there, like, preparing for a date. They come ringing the bell he thinks it's his date you like i just love the way that this plays that he's like oh shit i'm not gonna have one night to myself i i'm always gonna be the computer guy would the character have less dimension if that date was with a woman is it only dimension because it's with a guy because if so then that's reductive i think the actor felt like this is a part of himself that he could show yeah, I think Ben Wishaw has been out for a long time. I did not know that. I I don't follow who's out and not in Hollywood. Well, this is why we need a virtue signal. This is why he needs to do that. Just in case you wanted to clump me into that, like, this is who I am. I enjoyed all of this stuff. This is the right amount of Q for now. I thought this was a Q scene, quote unquote, right? The Kind of like the Q scenes we used to get with a little bit of banter with Q. Uh, but it was at his house this time. He doesn't have great gadgets. The problem is that Q normally is like, let me give you this fun gadgetry. Later, there's going to be a shock watch or something that doesn't really do much. Like, kill Cyclops. But for the most part, this is not a gadget-heavy movie. And if there is a gadget, it's about nanobot perfume. We see Safin is tracked down Madeline and wants her to be his assassin for Blofeld. The last Spectre member is a person only she can get access to. She And how would that work? Like, this man had you tied up and was going to stick pins in your ear and stuff, and now you get to be his therapist and make him a better human being? I think that's a conflict of interest. I don't know how she could be his therapist. They said that he demanded it. She's the only person he will talk to, and if you want him to talk at all, you have to send her. The fact that MI6 wants her to do this again after disappearing with Bond, the fact that it's so convoluted yep. and convenient that she is the therapist. I completely agree. A lot of this movie has convenience in it, and this is one big one. It's hard for me to also picture that they've had Blofeld in prison for five years. It kind of seems that of all the people to escape a MI6 facility, it would be Blofeld. I don't get how they were able to keep him locked down for five years if he's actually Blofeld. If Spectre is still out there, which it was until they all died a couple of scenes ago, how on earth did nobody, nobody break in there and catch him out. Furthermore, if Safin is able to get the DNA of all the other Spectre people, if Eve, 20 years old, is able to track down where Mr. White lives, how is he not able to get the Blofeld? A lot of this stuff is, is not making sense to me. I can help with the first part, at least. I think Blofeld is comfortable being in captivity, hiding in plain sight. It might look like he's in a cage, but the truth of the matter is, and this is what we like about Lecter as well, is that he has ways of controlling the outside world from that cage. And because he has Cyclops, and because they share that robotic 
eye, then he doesn't need to be anywhere. You know, like he would just have to go invent another layer and sit in that. Like, I guess this cage is as good as anything because I'm still commanding Spectre and operating from this cell. Now, as to why Safin has taken so long to get his revenge against Blofeld, what we will find out, let's just skip ahead. The beef is... My father invented this poison garden, and you took it away from me, and I want it back. I don't know why that would take so long. So Safin's father created the nanotech. Blofeld took the nanotech when he killed Safin's family, and then M took it when they captured Blofeld? Uh, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> it's a little sloppy and underdeveloped, and, uh, and let's just move on, because I don't have good answers for you. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it was a lot of people doing something unethical, and it's a stain on England MI6 that they were involved at all. Although they didn't know the extent of what it could be used to do. And so, Safin, here's what I gotta ask. He kills Blofeld through Madeline or through Bond? Your plot summary said that Bond already had the killing agent on him by being spritzed in Cuba. I glossed over this fact. What happened is he gave Madeline some nanobot perfume and Madeline is supposed to go in and touch Blofeld. And at the last minute, Madeline flips out and says, I can't do it. And Bond grabs her, thus getting the evil perfume on him. On his hand. Okay, that's what I thought. But at the same time, it's worth pointing out, the Spectre Killer was already on him. Like, if you had put it on Bond, Bond would be able to kill him since Cuba. Yeah, because they're going to say again and again, once you have these nanobots in you, forever they are in you. Looking for anyone with matching DNA. And you pass it on. Anyone you would touch would collect it. And the idea is eventually other people become the weapon. Would it? Does it pass on like that? Or is it only because she has perfume does it pass on? It's really difficult to say, isn't it? This is the kind of details you would want real hard rules on, and they're real soft. Like, unspoken. For the end of this movie to make sense, I need to understand this fully, and that's why I went back to see this movie twice, is to see if this ending is justified, and this movie does not justify its ending with the sloppy rules it makes around the nanobots. Right. Correct. I think it gets lost, and I wonder if it was... It sounds weird, but I think they might have wanted to protect Ancestry and .com and 23andMe, and they didn't want that to look as villainous as maybe this plot would have made it seem if if Safin had all of our DNA. So I also kind of like the fact that Bond was antagonized to the point where he just wanted to kill Blofeld, and he killed him, quote-unquote, by mistake. But you're right, theoretically speaking, he would have killed him with the Spectre stuff he had on him from Cuba. But the scene wants us to believe that... It's because of Madeline's perfume that Blofeld dies. So I like the way it played out. Did you guys enjoy the Hannibal Lecter, Chloe Starling aspect of the Bond and Blofeld conversation? I like the two actors sparring against each other very much. I hated the scene. I felt like Christoph Waltz was phoning it in so bad. I wanted to like it, but Christoph Waltz, he was not a good Blofeld in the last film, and this feels obligatory, perfunctory, and we gotta kill off all of Spectre. This whole movie's kill Spectre plot feels like the Broccoli's trying to kill the last movie. Yeah, I feel like Christoph Waltz, God bless him, is always the same person. Like, you hire him to do his smiling, like, he can be cold-blooded, but he'll do it with a big, broad grin. And, I don't know, maybe I'm a little tired of it or maybe it's just not how I ever saw Blofeld but I don't like his characterization I'm wishing God help me I I think Donald Pleasance is my go-to like that's the guy that I want to be Blofeld 
He just doesn't feel like Dr. Evil. And that's kind of what I wanted. And I also just want to put out there, like, this movie kind of lies. Blofeld is going to sit here and say, Madeline has a secret that will kill you when you find out. You're going to be dead when you know, and I want to be there when you see her face when she tells you. It is not that moment when we get that moment. No. And I do feel like he is overselling the I, the secret uh, like thing that will kill Bond. Like I feel like he's got nothing in the bag, and he's not very threatening, never has been. Tried to kill him with an MRI machine last movie, now is saying, you have a baby and it's going to blow your mind. Like it's suddenly an episode of a 90s talk show, like, you know, who's the daddy DNA testing. I don't get it. I don't really like the scene. So here's my thing. I did not like they killed Blofeld. That kind of took me aback. I don't think they can kill Blofeld. So kill Felix Leiter was one thing, but right? But they have. I mean, he's been dropped down smokestacks and studs. If you have Spectre back now in the Bond lore, right? And for the first time in many, many years, and they didn't actually drop, they implied that was Blofeld. We all know that. We talked about that on Fury's Only podcast. But you actually have now Blofeld back in the mix. So next movie is going to be a new Bond, new, I mean, new actor playing Bond, right? So how do you kill Blofeld and then bring Blofeld back? I can understand killing Spectre. You can always build Spectre back up, but you can't kill Blofeld because he's James Bond's nemesis. It's like, it's like killing Moriarty in Sherlock, which I think they might have done. They did a couple times, but but yeah, I I understand your point. This is a nemesis worthy of Batman and Joker, and we wanted a Jack Nicholson Joker, and we got Jared Leto Joker. Like he's barely in it. He seems to be a non-factor. He disappears really quick. And I doubt that anyone would list him as one of Daniel Craig's biggest foes. Brock, now that you know how this movie ends, does right. this problem still exist for you? Not as much. I still don't like that they did it, but I think going forward, they'll be able to solve this problem if they want to. They're killing everybody off. I mean, it is right. a checklist. It's like, okay, Felix down, next up, Blofeld. We got to shut this down. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't see that this was going to end with Bond's death. I mean, it's so telegraphed. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it is telegraphed, but it's something that you don't expect in a James Bond movie. Okay. And what I'm hearing you guys say, and this is what I can never know, is at this point in the movie, you hadn't figured out that surprise. Correct. No. Okay. I, I wonder myself, because knowing what my mom had told me, all I can see are the funerals and signifiers <laughs> of death. Okay. So, Stuart, Arnie, when I'm watching any other movie, I figure all this shit out. I do, because we have seen a lot of movies. The three of us know movies, right? We know these kind of things. We see these sort of things. Any other movie, any other movie, I would have picked this up, but not in a James Bond movie. You don't kill James Bond in a James Bond movie. So why would I think that? Yeah, so there you go. I agree. I knew it was Daniel Craig's last go-round, but I did not think it was James Bond's. I mean, and no time to die, die another day. Like, I didn't think it was today. <laughs> I just didn't think he would die today. I thought it would be another day. You know, I just, I really did. And so I'll tell you another thing that I did not guess. And I'm not sure it means what they think it means, but I did not realize that Madeline was trying to tell him she was pregnant. And that's what he's finally going to get, that secret, what Blofeld said would kill him 94 minutes into the movie. She told him when she ran away, I'm going home. He knows that means a lake house in Norway, finds her there, and finds a blue-eyed five-year-old child with a slinky. I haven't thought about a slinky in forever. I was laughing. I'm like, slinkies can do curved stairs? Mm -hmm. Everyone loves a slinky. I thought it was really cute to have a slinky because maybe it's her childhood slinky because it's her childhood home and we saw her in the 90s with her Tamagotchi. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. She should have been playing with the Tamagotchi too, but yes. That fat Tamagotchi died. It starved to death. <laughs> <laughs> they all died. They were hard to take Everyone care of. dies in this movie, Irony. Everyone dies. Right. Starting with the Tamagotchi. But yes. So the big blow here is that James Bond, womanizer that he is, finally has to like deal with the repercussion of that. Like, I have a baby. I have a child. You've kept this from me for all of this time. Not that I would have been easily defined. And and you could have probably screamed that out as the train was pulling out of the station. But here's how we're doing this. And he eases into it quite easily. I feel like he's making breakfast for her and being kind of a cute dad pretty quickly. I don't feel like it's a struggle at all. Am I the only one who would think all MI6 agents would have vasectomies? I mean, kind of like how in the Black Widow program, they gave all the women hysterectomies. Like, I would think Bond sleeps with enough women as part of the job that he'd be shooting blanks. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Arnie. Why does he still have the ability to father a child? But what I don't understand is why she told him it wasn't his. Yeah. I mean, it clearly is his. But she's trying to protect or maybe not make sure he doesn't feel an obligation or something like that. I don't know. But it seemed weak. They needlessly complicate it by saying it's not yours. And so then I go, oh. Uh, okay. I kind of believed her for a while, but then like it'll it'll be for Safin to reaffirm, yes, oh yes, it's yours. And I wonder if this is rewriting yes. because I wondered when she says it's not yours, if it was Safin's. And then if it was Safin's, would they form a nuclear family? Like would Bond become a surrogate father to this child? And then they're going to just clean it up and be like, no, it was your kid all along. And so that doesn't feel like it makes any sense to do that. How would it be Safin's baby? Who else would it be in this movie? I mean, I'm looking at the movie and trying to figure out who else would it be. And Safin was there at her childhood. Yes. 25 years ago. This would not be a little child. Well, no, I'm saying he came back at some point. No, the first time we saw each other was in when he went to her to give her the perfume right. to go see Blofeld. That, was the, that scene was the first time they saw each other. I hear what you're saying, Arnie. They are teasing the idea that there's some kind of romantic triangle here and that Safin and Bond have the same feelings about killing and about Madeline. And I wish that they could tighten that and make it seem like they were doppelgangers. That would help the second half of this movie if I could feel that Safin was Bond's equal. But yes, she was going to tell him way back in the day when they were out there after he went to the gravesite of Vesper, she said they were going home. She was going to take him to the Norway lake house and show him her past because she burned on her little I'm burning the past away masked man. She wrote that in French. She has been terrorized by Safin all of this time. Like I said, Laurie Strode, Michael Myers kind of thing. And she has in the safe room kind of what we already have pieced together. It's not really... We're not learning anything new, but Bond is, that basically Safin has killed Spectre because of what they did to his family. His family had the poisons, Blofeld took it over in an armed, hostile coup, and now Safin is back taking over his rightful garden, which is an island between Japan and Russia. We now have the climax of this movie. We know exactly where the big layer is. But we got to get rid of one more henchman. It should be said that the traitorous state secretary Logan has been tailing Bond 
and 007 has been tailing him, so they're all going to descend here into the Norwegian forest and have a shootout with uh, Range Rovers, basically. That was a re- it was really weird that they had a... It was like a product placement gone wrong with Range Rovers. I do like how that the reveal of how Bond figures out they're coming after him is that when he was asking Q to track him, and 007's tracker is right there because she's tracking Logan, and that's how Bond figures out that the guys are coming. That was really a fun reveal. I don't understand how the gunfight all of a sudden took place on the forest mood of Endor. <laughs> what the hell was that? I, I it, All of a sudden, I felt like we were in the Redwood Forests and not in Norwegian Forest. And in, also E.T. It was like the forest on E.T., which is also shot in California. It was just really weird, the fog and all that kind of... They kind of made... Try, try to do a good fight with there with the, with the forest and the Range Rovers, but all of the elements uh, seemed very distracting to me, even down to the whole point where he uses the rope to clothesline the motorcyclist, reminding me of the Ewoks mm. when they did that to the speeder bike. That was kind of fun, though. As someone that doesn't always think about Star Wars as much as you guys probably do, I just appreciate that as a physical stunt. But I suppose you're right. What does this chase scene mean? It's kind of half and half. It does feel half car commercial, and then half of it is about, like, you're finally standing up to the family. Like, these are your values. You were lost in the woods, I mean that symbolically, and now you know your purpose is you want to take care of Madeline and Matilda and you know it's a competent kind of shootout there's a couple stunts that are cool but overall it didn't grab me the way that many of the great Daniel Craig action scenes including Cuba grab me this one rolls off my back both times I watched it I find myself starting to lose interest in this chase because it doesn't feel very well motivated you know of all the characters in this stuffed full movie logan is one of the very least interesting and this chase through the forest i'm just like can we please get back to rami malik i'm not enjoying this elongation unnecessarily i'm not opposed to long movies you got to justify your length and right here is a huge chunk that doesn't it felt like they needed an action scene here, like an action beat, because it's been so long. It reminded me very much of the scene in The World Is Not Enough when they had those helicopter things with the blades on the docks. There was that kind of action scene of like, okay, they're doing this because they need an action scene in a James Bond movie, but no one really cares about this action scene at all. That's that immediately popped to mind. So all these other movies are popping into my mind during this sequence. It, that's just a sign of a bad sequence. Well, it's also a sign of a franchise that has 25 installments, and what new can you do? I think the newness is that he has a daughter in the backseat. We think, sort of. Like, again, she's clouded it to think that maybe it's not his, but we're pretty sure that it is. And I had another thing going on in my mind, because the child said, oh, I've been bit by a mosquito, and do they have friends and all of this? I'm thinking, like, ooh, they got the nanobots on her. Like, she's going to get sick or something like that. They're going to turn it into, we need to save her before she dies of... A poison. Yes. This is the first movie in the history of now playing where they're going to mention something like that and it never becomes anything. We always talk about how if a character coughs, they're dead. A character gets bit by a mosquito and it's just a mosquito bite. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder, you talk about rewriting, and I'm sure that a lot gets changed here in the second half of this movie. I wonder if that wasn't, here's here's my guess. I'm just going to throw this out there. My guess is they struggled greatly with killing Bond. They struggled greatly with the idea that he would be infected with something that he couldn't get off of him and would sacrifice himself or die for any reason. And so there was probably a lot of waffling about whether you could undo the nanobots. This looks like a moment that would have been, oh, I've got to go do this to save my child. 
world. And then they decided, no, we want the nanobots to be permanent. So let's just cut the idea that she's infected. But she kind of disappears from the picture. We see Safin swoop in on the chopper and grab them. And now the 007s have to team up to raid the island. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see how these ideas might have played out and who said no and why. We can never know because we're only going to see this cut of the movie. So you're saying this movie's chopped up broccoli. <laughs> uh, wow. Bring it, bringing it back to Saturday Night Live, right? Glorious, glorious, glorious. At any rate, we're two hours into this film, and there are 43 more minutes to go. I'm feeling it. I'm guessing you guys are feeling it. I'm watching mom squirm in her seat. The air condition is high anyway. She's cold. She's ready to go. Like, Bond movies really shouldn't be more than 210, right? Like, this should be, like, getting ready for the roll credits. And we're just at the point where the two 007s are going to work together. Like, I get the sentiment, but half an hour earlier, right? It kind of felt forced to me, but I kind of liked that they teamed up together and they got a cool new gadget of the gravity-defying glider submarine stealth bomber thingamabob that seemed to have four different functions, which was very Q branch. And of course, you got that cool electronic watch. Magnets. It's all magnets. And then we get to that big layer where they're having a big pool of water, which is acid, I think. Again, this is where I get really confused on what they're growing, what they're building, what they're doing here. I thought that was the Heracles. I thought that was a big vat of Heracles. Right, but why? Like, the problem again is, what is his deal now? Spectre is gone. Blofeld is gone. What is he doing with Heracles now? And why they have a big pool of acid? And why is there all of this vials of Heracles? What is the plan that is completely bonkers to me why does he have the daughter i don't get any of this me either i'm guessing he had a speech i'm guessing he said i want to kill whatever everyone in europe everything whatever because he's going to give half that speech he's going to give a speech about how people ultimately want oblivion and they want to be subservient to a god and i will be that god for them but what he wants out of his subjects gets left out i think we are to tie it in some way god help us to his obsession with Madeline. I think that he wants to, I don't know, kill every other woman in the world so there's only Madeline for him. I don't know what. I couldn't begin to guess. I would love to see the versions of the script that spend more time on Safin. But I do think that for whatever reason, they felt like what he was proposing was not appropriate for this movie. That They're hiding his villainy, which seems like a weird impulse. But yet they're amplifying villainy because he wants to destroy something for some reason. And this is, again, why I went back a second time to see if this is explained. This is not explained. Here's what they show us. The 007s make it back to the Russian scientists. They pop in something on the computer and watch a map of Europe in which, you know, red dots populate essentially all of Europe and eventually the whole globe. It's the idea that that people are going to be contaminated with this and it's going to spread and it's going to wipe out large parts of the population. Is that about ecology? And, you know, we've seen that with Kingsmen. Like, why kill all those people? Won't get any lip service given to that. But what's also said is that there's a bunch of unseen buyers. There's boats coming for people that are buying this from Safin. He's not going and administering this. He's just selling it. And they're going to go take it to do whatever. So there's even underlings and villains under villains we don't see and understand. It just feels way underdeveloped and confusing. And you just kind of have to gist it and just roll out. 
So here's my theory on all of this too, Stuart, is that this movie's villain doesn't matter. It's not about the villain at all, at all, at all. It's about Bond and his journey ending with Daniel Craig ending as this Bond. This version of Bond needs to end. It doesn't matter. This villain is just there because we need a, bil- a villain in a Bond movie. But the villain in the Bond movie's role here is to basically clean house, is to get rid of Spectre, to get rid of Blofeld. So everything at the end of this movie is tied up in a bow. So this era of movie, these five movies are self-contained. So anything that comes after this in a new Bond series, when they reintroduce Felix Leiter or Blofeld and all that kind of stuff, they start from scratch. So everything in this particular version, in this 15 years of Bond, is a tight little bow rounded up. So this villain, unfortunately, Rami Malek gets screwed because the villain in this movie does not matter. I agree what you're saying, Brock, but you understand that sucks. I agree with you because it's unsatisfying as a movie. This movie cannot stand on its own if that's the case because the problem with this scene and all this stuff is I don't give a shit. I don't know what's going on. And if you're going to kill Bond, the villain needs to matter more than ever. Bond even has a line where he says Safin is in a long line of angry little men. Like, he's just yet another thing that, you know, I've faced in cookie cutter, almost. Like, here's my prediction. There was one thing that was the big fight. Are we killing Bond or are, are we not? And I think you're right, Brock. In the end, they decided we need to make this about Bond and loss and focus on him. And that means who cares Rami Malek? I, it feels like there were moments and versions uh, where there was a lot about Rami Malek and he just unfortunately they decided to put all of their energy towards Daniel Craig and not towards anybody else. This weapon, this bioweapon here, is extremely convenient to be able to clean up everything they need to clean up. And so the way they tie it into Bond at the end does make sense to me. But the fact that this guy is doing it does not. Well, here's what we know. Let's just focus on the things that they definitely tell us in this movie. Safin is walking around his Zen garden with the little Matilda saying, you're going to grow up here like I did. I think he's saying, I want to be your father. And he's definitely saying later, like he's even like, okay, you can have your daughter back. I'll let you leave Bond, but you are not getting Madeline. I love Madeline so much. You cannot have her. And we have a cutaway where Cyclops is trying to feed her some tea. I think that's the plant that he said was mind controlling. I think his plan is to turn her subservient so she does whatever he says. But who can say? I mean, again, that we, we know that ultimately he lets this child go. The child is like, I don't want to go with you on the escape boat. And he's like, okay. And she gets <laughs> to wander back to mom and dad. And that's so bizarre. Yeah, she bites him and runs away because he didn't let her grab her rabbit. That signals to me it was never about the child. I thought at certain points he was dangling that child like, this is my way to black. You would want to keep her just a blackmail Bond, right? Like, this is my insurance to make sure Bond doesn't kill me. Like, I can always just say I have your daughter and don't kill me for that reason. But he really lets her go without complaint and really only seems to... I guess his insurance is he has the DNA of Madeline and Matilda and... And he is going to, in this final fight here, infect Bond with that. If I can't have them, you'll never be able to go near them either. But there's that great scene right around here where Bond goes through the stairwell and kills all the guys. And it was all one shot from what I was seeing until the point where they had the cut when he gets Cyclops in his in his arms. But it was going up this kind of like a video game. Like you go up the stairs and you shoot through the doors. All these guys pop out and the camera keeps on switching places. That's what I was thinking, Brock. It was like... The scene that they're going to turn into a video game. 
Right, exactly. Well, it's been a lot of James Bond video games already. This is very much like the Quantum of Solace game I played back in the day. And it was really kind of fun. I liked how they gave the illusion of one shot if it wasn't one shot, but it certainly seemed that way for about five minutes of it. It was really great. And it was really great and beautifully filmed. A lot of this movie is beautifully filmed. I want to give them credit for there. A lot of it looked really nice. There's a scene we didn't talk about earlier when they're chasing, they're running away before the forest fight and the cars come back over the crest of the road because Bond knows they're going to turn around when they pass them. There's shots like that that are brilliantly done and here in this stairwell sequence they did a really great job it's probably the best stairwell fight I've seen since Civil War uh, with Captain America because uh, stairwell fights are always so contained and closed in and it's hard to figure out clever things to do and they really did a great job so this is really a fun scene and I loved that when he gets Cyclops in his clutches and he kills him with the watch he says Q just showed someone your watch really blew his mind and that's a great James Bond zinger that I wish we had more of in this Craig series. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like a Craig James Bond line, does it? Again, this feels like something Roger Moore would say with a wink. Well, he did say that last hand almost killed me. In Casino Royale, it's exactly the same delivery. It is, but I think, to Arnie's point, the nods to try and do what has been done before feel strange when most of what they're focused on is bringing what they've done recently to a close. And that's the, that's been the struggle. And again, I bet you anything, huge fights about are we killing him or not. And it probably came down to Craig insisting, I'm not coming back for this movie unless you do it. I'm feeling like Daniel Craig said, it's in my contract, I die. Yeah, but if that was the case, you'd think that from the beginning they'd have a cohesive vision, whereas what we're hypothesizing is this was chopped up during shooting and chopped up more during editing, which wouldn't make sense if it was in his contract at the beginning. Oh, I think they always were working on him to, well, maybe we imply you die, or maybe we don't see you vaporize before our eyes, or, you know, like, there were lots of ways to imply that maybe he's dead, but maybe he's not, and again, it just feels like in this movie and to its detriment, I feel like this last 20 minutes is about burying Daniel Craig instead of wrapping up a Bond film. So the All the Time in the World comes back again here, which is a callback again to uh, Majesty's Secret Service. And when he says the line again, I'm sitting there in the theater like, oh my God, they're going to kill James Bond. Oh my God, they're killing James Bond. And then they make, without a shadow of a doubt, kill James Bond. There's no sh- There's no doubt they didn't kill him. When did you know? When he's in the pool? When Rami Malek gets killed? No, when he was climbing up the ladder, talking to Metal and saying goodbye, more or less, right? And then he's standing on there. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to kill him. And then the freaking, he says a damn line again. I'm like, oh my God. He said the line again. They're actually going to kill him. Oh my freaking God, they're going to kill And then they kill him. And I'm like, you, 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 you can't kill James Bond. So this whole series is about doing things with James Bond you can't do, right? You can't not start with a gun barrel sequence. You can't have Q. That has been the Craig era. So here's the last thing you can't possibly do in a James Bond movie. James Bond is a survivor. He always gets out of the scrapes. And they did it. And you can't take that back. Now, there's always going to be, how many more times can you destroy the Enterprise, right? It's the same thing. How many more, every time we watch a James Bond movie, every single time there's going to be a new James Bond, we're going to have this conversation. Are they going to kill him? It's now on the table. And I don't like that as a James Bond fan because James Bond always survives. But on the other hand, this whole movie is leading up to it. And this Craig series is very much its own egg So therefore, it does make sense on an intellectual level. But for Brock, the lifelong James Bond fan, I don't think I like that. I'm not a James Bond fan. I don't give a shit that they killed him. I give a shit that they did it for a stupid reason. Because he can't touch his daughter. It is physical contact, as we saw with Blofeld. And so he could still live a happy life 
just not touching Madeline or Matilda. And it's like saying, if you're a quadriplegic, just explode yourself, because if you can't touch your daughter, life isn't worth living. And that, to me, is dumb. Well, I just want to say, as as the only father here, if you can't hold your four-year-old daughter, that's torture. He'll be a tortured man for the rest of his life, especially when she's growing up. They might get used to it after a while, but not being able to touch the woman you love or your daughter, especially at that age, is torture. I go back to my quadriplegic. Are you saying that their lives aren't worth living? No, that's not what I'm saying, Arnie. What I'm saying is not being able to hold your four-year-old daughter is is torture. It's absolutely agony. That is also not the only reason. And it's really one to stress here. They've clouded that issue because I think that was part of the fight you're going to tell me that he's doing it for sentimental reasons he's basically committing suicide for her and that's what it seems like in both times i saw it is it seemed that way that had to be a huge fight had to be a huge fight rami malik safin shot him five times that man is barely moving if he didn't have this wife and kid if they had already been killed or whatever or made it out and he didn't have the poison on him he wouldn't be able to get to safety they've engineered it so that there is no way he is moving fast enough to get off this island he is not they don't drive that home and he walks out to confront the bomb and stand there in the explosion to be sure he dies. I don't know that that was really, in both my viewings, that didn't hit me as a reason. He can barely move. It is very clear that he is, after that being shot in that Zen pool five times, he is not capable of being the indestructible self. Now, of course, layered onto that is the idea of I have nothing to live for. Also want to throw out one other element here. Yeah, I could get away, maybe. Let's assume that he could. I could get away and never see her again. I didn't see her for five years. It would be hard, but I could do it. FaceTime your daughter. Right. We could do that. But if this works the way I think they say it works, I touch Q, Q touches Money Penny, Money Penny runs some diapers over to Matilda and Madeline and they're dead. Because it transferred that way. If I let this get out into the world, it will chain react back to her some way. Okay, so babies, he'd be the bubble boy if he doesn't have anything else to do. But you can blow him up and it, everything the nanotechnology does there, because that's the whole point of blowing the missiles up. That's why it goes back to open the doors again, is because that way it's gone from the world and it doesn't affect people. Okay, I guess... It's just a stupid reason to die for an indestructible character to choose to die that way. And you say he can't move, but he climbs that ladder and gets on that roof and barely. He's not moving like he could get down that hill and onto a boat and swim away. Barely. But I mean, James Bond always barely escapes at the end, too. It doesn't look that way. Yeah, look, I hear what you guys are saying, and I agree with you. If they had wanted to, they could. he could have found the energy to get away. They want you to have the feeling that this is a romantic moment. That is what they're doing. They're focusing on that. And it's a stupid romantic moment. <laughs> but I also think they've hedged their bets for people like you that are going to make this complaint that he was also mortally injured by Safin. He was not going to survive when Safin put five bullets in it. I think that's kind of worse because I'd rather have Bond kill himself for love and for his daughter, even if I don't like the woman he's in love with, than have Rami Malek be the one to kill him. I mean, he survived Javier Bardem, he survived Blofeld, he survived Lashif, and this guy, Safran, gets the kill shot? It still sits wrong with me, and again, intellectually speaking, I, I don't feel satisfied by it, but I understand it. Again, this is why I went back the second time, is this, on this all depends, and 
Oof, they fucked this up. I'm going to be a little bit more ambivalent. Part of it is that I was already told going into the movie this was going to happen. And so how is it going to play and isn't it earned? I feel like it's definitive. I feel like Craig's going out the way that Craig would want to. You're not going to call me in two years saying, well, how about one more? No. I told you no. I meant no. And this is over. And I feel like I've told you a whole story. You saw me become 007. You saw me end as my whole career having established a new love and a legacy. Maybe my daughter is going to grow up and be the Bond super spy. Or maybe we have this Nomi chick, which, I mean, she did get one kill in there. She did end up pushing the Russian scientist into the poison pool. But I don't feel like this movie was built to give her the franchise. I feel like they're basically saying this man has a legacy. There is something after him. But his story, hard start, hard stop. This will be its own entity apart from all the other James Bond movies. We pretend it's the same guy. New actors step into the role. Decades pass and he remains 35, 40. But we accept that it's the character living on for eternity. It's really weird to see an immortal character die. That's what I think the struggle is. It's like James Bond is not capable of dying. How can I accept this moment? It just really had to be justified. The same way I go to superhero characters who die, you know, and I, I my go-to because it's recent is Endgame, where Iron Man dies and Captain America pretty much dies. I mean, I don't think that he had much longer to live at that age. So you justify it. You make it emotional. You give it good reasons. You have an arc that's set up from frame one that goes to this point and feels satisfying. The beginning of the movie, he wanted to hold his daughter and then kills himself because he can't. They did! All of this stuff at the end is mirroring the beginning of the movie. The beginning of the movie is about going to the Italian Acropolis and saying goodbye to the grave and moving on and creating something new. I mean, again, that was what was said. We're burning the past and creating something new. We have just watched Daniel Craig self-immolate. He has burned himself up, and now whatever comes next in this franchise is entirely new. You know what would have been more satisfying for me? You could have killed him in a satisfying way. Cut Madeline and Matilda out of this. We saw at the beginning, he's still not over Vesper. Have him shot five times. Like Khan, he drags himself over to a control panel to open those blast doors that he went back to do, and then ends by saying, I'm finally going to be with Vesper or something to himself. Speaking to Vesper right before they join in the afterlife, fine with that. This, dumb. I don't know if that Vesper thing's going to play after all this Madeline and stuff, especially when you put a kid into it, that Vesper thing isn't going to play. I just said cut them both out of the whole movie, though. Well, yeah, it's they were bound to it because of Spectre. There are things that they could not change that would probably aid this movie if Spectre had never been made. I think it would have aided the franchise if Spectre had never yeah, been agreed, made. Yeah, agreed, agreed. If they killed Madeline in the beginning of the movie like we all thought she was going to get killed in the beginning of the movie, and then Bond retires because she died, yet another person he loved died because he's a spy, that would have worked completely. To take her out of the equation, you could have done it right there in the beginning. Yeah, it would just make her Vesper too, you know, like this one is the flip is we're going to be thinking about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, you know, but instead of thinking of the wife dead, we're thinking of it the other way. The wife lives on, the child lives on, and the bond that we have come to know for the past, what, 15 years is over. 
But here's the other problem, then. In, they have all the characters, all the new Q, Money Penny, M, sitting around drinking a toast to him. They're out of a job. Because I would love to have them come back and be M and Q and Money Penny, because I really like these actors in these roles. But if they're putting an, an end and a definitive period on this, they're going to have to reintroduce all of these characters with brand new actors next time when they presumably pick up the series where it picked up when Roger Moore took over from Sean Connery, where business as usual, James Bond movie. Not necessarily. Judy Dench transferred into this series. Others could transfer out. Yeah, that's normally what the instinct would be, but I feel like Mallory's ruined. Mallory made the point, if we fire these missiles, the international community is going to want explanations. And when they find out what I did, I won't have this job. Like, maybe there'll be an M, but it won't look like me. And I again, I think that they've been telling us everything that you've come to know over five films will not be here next time. This And it's really hard for us because we do think of Bond being eternal and going on and finding ways to shapeshift but be the same guy. And whatever comes next is almost unimaginable. We cannot know what it's even going to look like because nothing we're seeing here will be there. It makes me excited that this is the first time in our Bond retrospective series that we're going to be speculative and wondering about the new Bond. And Mm -hmm. when we come back to this, having a new Bond for the first time, because we came into this in the third film of the Craig era, to start this retrospective back in 2012. I don't think they're going to wait four or five years to do another one. And I think when we come back, it's going to be really exciting to have all of us completely fresh to how a new Bond does it. And we're going to be able to talk about how we did when, when we talked about Christine Royale, about you know how the press reacts to the new person, etc. So that's really going to be a fun thing. I know the two of you had to have waited like I did throughout the entire credits to see if they will put James Bond will return at the end. And this is the biggest, boldest font they could have possibly <laughs> used to tell the audience, no, 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 it's okay. He will return. He's coming back. I promise. So I got the point. Okay, he's coming back. This is not going to end James Bond movies. But also, Broccoli and Wilson are not young, spring chickens, right? So they'll probably launch this next Bond, and they're probably going to be looking for their successors as well going into this next Bond, presumably their last one before they have to hand the reins over. I don't know how old their kids are, if they're even interested in it. Obviously, Barbara was, was groomed by by Cubby, and I think Wilson is related, like it's a brother-in-law or something. I can't remember anymore. I didn't look it up before we did our recording. But the point is that he's family too. So whoever's, hopefully they're grooming someone along to take over the reins to keep Bond going in the family for years to come. Well, I'm sure we're going to be reviewing Bond together for years to come as well. So Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend No Time to Die? Stuart. Yeah, I think what listeners have been hearing is a real mixed bag, right? Stuff that's really good, stuff that's pretty good, stuff that's undeveloped, and stuff that pissed us off. And on the surface, it's the film I asked for. I wanted a conclusion to Spectre that gave Craig a definitive send-off and balanced the somber tones with some fun. And we get that. We got that in Cuba. We get it in moments here. I see the fun movie that this could continue on to be if it hadn't decided to kill everything and scorch the earth, throw it in a bonfire, and say, we're starting completely fresh next time. Okay, I'm living with that. I'm working through that. I don't know how I feel about that, but I know I have liked this era. And I like Daniel Craig in the role, so there's a lot of sadness connected to that. But there's also three glaring problems with this movie specifically. 
One, they thought they had all the time in the world to tell this story. It is way too long. It is what mom was screaming. It's what I'm screaming. The pace of this movie is bad. It's not quite Spectre bad, but it is dawdling. And I really felt like people knock on Quantum of Solace, but there might be something to said about like faster editing and just like, let's get to this. Let's not linger so much. We can do the funeral stuff in the last 20 minutes, but let's not have a three hour funeral. And sometimes, a lot of times, it kind of feels like that. The other problem, and I don't know that it's specifically Rami Malek, but it's definitely Safin. We don't really connect to this villain and his master plot the way we need to, to care about the conclusion. It's kind of like the first half is fun, and then after Cuba, we're struggling. And this is where Rami Malek should come in and really steal the scene in the ways that the great villains have. Mads was so great in Casino Royale. Javier Bardem looks so wonderful in Skyfall. I don't know. Safin makes about as much impression as, like, the quantum villain. Like, the guy that ended up drinking oil in the desert. Like, he just doesn't land it. And that's too bad. But the biggest problem, the one that everything is hinging on, more than the villain, frankly, because I've recommended Bond movies with weaker villains, is that we are expected to believe that James Bond is doing everything he's doing for Madeline. And I don't like her. <laughs> I do not like this chick. I do not think they have any chemistry. I don't think that Safin should love her. I don't think Bond should love her. I get that she should love them. She's got a daddy complex. Her dad was an assassin. She falls in love with bad brutish men. Sure. But give me one reason why Bond is hung up on her, particularly after Vesper. Vesper was something unforgettable. And she is a bad one-night stand. Like, you leave that far behind. They want us to believe she's the legacy. No way. That is the most difficult. It's why the ending is so hard for me. It's not because they killed Bond. It's that he did it for her. Come on, give me a break. But I think out of goodwill, in the same way that probably I recommended Spectre, I'm leaning towards recommend with the idea that this will not look as good in the future. That when I take five years from now and come back and see it, it might go red. Like I might just say, you know, there was a lot of problems with this and it wasn't ultimately fun. I think that's true. But right now, because of the goodwill of Craig and because I've wanted it to come back and because it did succeed in certain moments, I'm going to squeak over that line and say... Fans, you definitely have to see it. It's worth a mild peek, but certainly wasn't going to be as good as Casino Royale or Skyfall. I'm going to say Quantum of Solace is better. Arnie. Stuart, I agree with you a lot in what you've said, and I have really enjoyed this Craig era more than any other era of Bond. I've enjoyed the journey through it with the two of you, but I've enjoyed the Craig era of films like no other. And so... I went in thinking of the greats, Casino Royale and Skyfall, and thinking, every other Craig is great, so let's go out on a really high note. And about halfway through my first watching of this movie, I hated it. Mm. I hated it once they left Cuba. Once they're in that jungle chase, I'm squirming in my seat like your mom. Like, I legitimately, if it wasn't for now playing, considered walking out. I was that bored and just not interested in where this film was going. Why is that? Part of it is the superfluousness of characters. There's multiple James Bond girls here. If you just want to consider any major woman in a James Bond film a Bond girl, you've got the new 007, you've got the agent in Cuba, you've got Madeline floating around, and I agree, I don't like the relationship with Madeline. 
But more important than any relationship with a Bond girl is the relationship with the villain. And once Blofeld was killed and Saffron keeps on going with his villainy, I'm out the first time and I'm despising what I'm watching because it feels so unmotivated and then when he kills himself at the end again two viewings I don't get that he's so wounded that he has to climb up on a roof and stand there for a bomb I'm ready to flip this movie off in the theater I mean but then I walk away I cool down and I think okay I was having a very emotional reaction to this because I expected greatness and what I got, you know what? There was some good camera work here. There were some good action scenes here. Some of it was okay. Some of it was really good. I like the concept of the nanotech. I like the jokes about, oh, you think you're the only 007? Like they'd retire that shirt when you no longer have it. You know, that was my thinking was a sports metaphor. And so I sat down and I decided, you know what? I didn't like it. But so many people are liking this. I felt like I had to go back again. And really be sure of my opinion before coming on this show and going, uh uh. And so I went back and watched it again to make sure the things I didn't like about it were correct. Did I miss something? Was there a line dropped? Now that I am no longer completely floored by the revelation that Stuart had spoiled, that this is all leading up to Bond being bombed, then I wanted to revisit and re-experience. It goes back to the conversation we had at the top of the show. I think that sometimes having expectations set through trailers or a second viewing of the film can greatly enhance the experience of a movie. Not everything is about spoilers and knowing what's happened next. So sometimes the second viewing of a film, I can appreciate it a lot more. And this one... This movie does not justify its length. It is downright dull for long stretches of time. Safin is a villain whose motivation, if it was in the script, is on the cutting room floor after his revenge against Spectre. I really think that this movie was decent up until the killing of Blofeld, and then it just falls apart. And that ending, I still think sucks. And I really would like to give this movie a recommend to say... I recommend the Craig era, you know, that the Craig era is good enough that I would do this, but I'm not going to, because I'm going, I, I believe what you've done, Stuart, is a mistake by judging an entire series and saying the series is enough to give this one its conclusion, a weak recommend. This movie in isolation was bad, and I'm going to give this a not recommend. Well, you've gone backwards, you know, before, and you've repented, and you've on air. Yeah, Spectre was a recommend. Go listen to that show. I said, yeah, it was good. No, it's not. It's terrible. There you go. So I'm struggling with this because uh, you don't kill James Bond. And to me, that's one thing you can't ever do. But that, as Stuart has pointed out, that this whole series, the Craig era, this is what they went to do. They went to reboot this character and bring him into a modern era. And they certainly did succeed in many ways. Uh, this movie is not the disaster that Arnie thinks it is, in my opinion. It has some wonderful moments. They have some great action scenes. They have some great camera work. I did enjoy the first part of this movie. I wasn't noticing the time because I just wanted to see how this would end. I was so invested in how are they going to end this, right? I did notice the plotting uh, in the first half hour, the first 40 minutes was just taking us time, letting itself breathe. And I just did not enjoy that deliberate pace. Um, but there were moments that I do enjoy. They brought back Q gadgets. I did enjoy they have a quip. I, they had a portrait on the wall of Bernard Lee at one scene. 
was really kind of nice. I mean, using MI6 in the scene with M. I thought that was a really nice touch. For Bond fans like myself, there's a lot here to enjoy. But can we sit with the ending? So we've had bad villains before. We've had bad Bond girls. We've had bland Bond girls. Is the overall package what I like in James Bond movies? Well, there's not a lot of fun here. I've said it before. Arnie said it. Stewart said it. There's a problem here is that the lack of fun in this movie is going to make it hard to want to watch and repeat viewings. I'm one of those people for Quantum of Solace who doesn't enjoy watching it because it's no fun to watch. But if you watch Skyfall, you watch Casino Royale, it's a lot of fun to watch, even though there's character stuff and and there's uh, they do take their time and things like that. But the moments are worth it and they pay off. But, but there's something about it that I do like. And I do like that they went there. And I do like that they chose to go there intellectually. I just don't like it for the character because I don't want it to be out there forever that it's an option to kill James Bond. So I am giving a weakest of recommends because Bond fans do need to see this and people should watch this if they've enjoyed Daniel. Daniel Craig, James Bond movies. Will it stand up on its own? No, this movie, this whole series, you can't watch really anything but Casino Royale, I think, without knowing anything else about the series. Skyfall. Yeah, Skyfall, you can watch as a regular James Bond movie. For many episodes of this series, I kept on talking about how uh, looking forward to them to returning to a traditional Bond movie. And, you know, Spectre was pretty much close to, as we're going to get to a regular James Bond movie from a bygone era with Daniel Craig as James Bond. And how (laughs) you got to be careful what you wish for, I think I said in the last podcast. I am greatly looking forward to a James Bond movie that stands on its own. That I don't have to watch four movies ahead of time to get caught back up on who people are. I want to come back in with a new James Bond and have a James Bond adventure with cute gadgets and funny one-liners and femme fatales and all that stuff. And that's where we're going now. But this experiment was successful. And I think they had to end the Craig era definitively because history has been made for James Bond in this series and history has been made because James Bond has died. This is not the movie I wanted it to end, the Craig era, because if you've noticed, every other James Bond movie with Daniel Craig has been great, but this one breaks that streak. This one is right in the middle of the road for me. I think I would probably return to this again before I return to Spectre again. So um, I'm going to give it the weakest of recommends, but I wish it was something better, but it's over. And Arnie, I want to know, is this the worst Daniel Craig one? No, I would say my ranking goes Skyfall, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, No Time to Die, Spectre. It's Skyfall over Casino Royale. Wow. So I said that at the time, too. I love Skyfall. And I love it, too. But, it I mean, few things are as good as Casino Royale. Like, that movie is special to me. Like, it's its, its own thing. What about you, Stuart? What do you think? What, what's your ranking for Craig? Casino Royale, Skyfall, Take a Long Break... Quantum of Solace, and then this one, Spectre. Spectre is the only one that I would say definitively, it's really not good. Yeah. Like this one I struggle with. Quantum, I think, is fine. Like, I think Quantum is better than most Roger Moore movies. It's just that it pales in comparison to what we know Daniel Craig movies can do. Yeah, so I'm going Casino Royale, Skyfall, for sure. And then it gets kind of muddy. I think Spectre's on my bottom, too. But I've only seen this movie. It's the newest movie, right? So no time to die, Quantum of Solace, Spectre. Okay. After my next viewing or two of this one, I wonder if that will switch. 
I did love two of the Craig era films, and I mean, capital L, love those two. I'm excited to see where they can go next. I have a feeling they're going to try, you know, like you said with the Jared Leto Joker, Stuart, you just don't do the same thing twice. So I think they're going to go a different way than the ultra-realistic, grim and gritty Bond, but I'm curious to see which way they go. I think the world is ready for James Bond to get fantastical again. I think the whole point of this Craig era was because they know they went off a cliff with Die Another Day, and so now I think it's been 15 years. It will be almost 20 since they launched Craig when they got a new movie out with a new Bond. I think people are ready for more fun and, and excitement at the movies versus a gritty, dark, realistic movie. Because how much pushback is DC getting, for example, with their superhero versions of dark and gritty, where Marvel has some serious stuff going on, but it's still a fun time at the movies. So Bond's going to come back more closer to Pierce Brosnan, who brought more realism and, and depth to it. Because Craig was very much like Dalton in a lot of ways, right? But Dalton still had fun James Bond movies with a dark character in there. I think we're going to see more of a Dalton slash Pierce Brosnan Bond than we're going to see Connery and uh, and more. You know, the theme of the era right now is diversity. And obviously, you know, even with the tease of this new 007 is, could they flip genders? Could they make it a different race? I honestly think if you really wanted to piss people off, the way to really like shock them is to not make him British. Like if they were to take him away from MI6 and made him American or something like that. Yeah, that could really, really sit wrong. I think here's my only prediction. And this is what I deeply believe they're going to do. It will be the youngest Bond we've ever seen. It will be a 20-something. It'll be a kid. Hmm. Maybe a female, maybe a trans, maybe who knows? I don't know how you cast it. Wide net. But it will be under 30. It may feel more like Kingsman than a Bond movie. I, I don't think they can go American with this. I think if they were going to make him not British, this is the series to do it with, you know, Daniel Craig. Is Everything is out the window. I guess the only thing left now out the window is MI6, right? Because <laughs> they killed him. I don't think they're going to make it a woman. And I don't think they're going to make If they make it a woman, it's probably not going to be an African-American woman. We all wanted Idris Elba for many, many years as James Bond, and people would have accepted that. If they can find someone like Idris Elba, I think that would work. He's got a son. <laughs> like, he's probably age appropriate. Yeah. I honestly think they're going to go another British white male for the role. Because the pushback, regardless of the eras we're living in now, Thor is going to be a woman, right? With Jane Foster coming up. And Captain America's right. African-American. It's the very big trend. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's the trend. We'll see. I would put a, a strong 50 against Bond being a white male next time. I almost guarantee he won't be. Yeah. We'll see. I think it'd be a wonderful thing if they will do it. I just don't think they're going to try that. I, I don't think the producers want to try that. But I don't know. Because they gave us that great scene in Cuba this time with the two women kicking ass. And it was great, right? So clearly, there's room for that. Women can be spies, but can women be James Bond? I think that's really the rub of it is James Bond, we have a particular idea about who that is. To say that anyone could do it doesn't feel correct. Like, no, James Bond is a certain way, shaken, not stirred. If you make a different cocktail, call it something else. I agree with that, but that's not what they're doing with almost any character. Yeah, I agree. We're going through this painful era of seeing how far we can stretch our conceptions of iconography. And I'm just thinking that James Bond, it might be a weird one-off, but I think that they will try to do something completely unexpected. And it will be young. It will try to appeal to, I mean, it might be on TikTok. Like, it may not even be in a movie theater. Like, it might just be, we're really going there. I look forward to the Bond dance. <laughs> yes. Yep, there it is. We don't know when Bond's coming back, but Brock, we know when you're coming back next week. Yes, because 
Next week we review Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Next week Brock's back for Halloween, Halloween kills. It's true, Michael Myers is back for the 11th time. Does that count the one he's not in? Hmm, good point, good point. Maybe it's the 10th time not counting Season of the Witch. And who counts Season of a Witch? But Halloween Kills, it's not directed by Rob Zombie. But from what I hear, it's going to feel like a Rob Zombie movie. A lot of people are going to get killed in that one. High body count. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, we're going to be back here next week. And just a reminder to our listeners, you can hear us review Halloween Kills live at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time if you are a patron at either our Patreon page or our Podbean page. If you're a patron of the level where you can listen to live shows, you get to join us and listen live. And yes, we are over on Patreon now where you can get all of those rewards we used to have on Podbean for our patrons. And now you don't have to use the Podbean app. I know a lot of people like the Podbean app. We're not getting rid of Podbean. We're diversifying. We're going to be on both now. And if you just want to hear our patron-exclusive rewards, those levels are also available right through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So hopefully you'll be able to join us and hear our live reactions to Halloween Kills. I guarantee you, listening to us live is a totally different experience. (laughs) (laughs) Unedited shows, very different from edited shows. Hear Brock unfiltered on the Halloween Kills review, because we know horror is his favorite genre. Oh my god, so much so. Actually, I've been enjoying introducing my daughter to some classics of late, and because she's of the age, and so it did come up that how much I love the original Halloween. And Brock, we've been having this discussion, you and several of us at Now Playing about introducing your children to horror movies, much the way Now Playing introduced you to horror movies. And one that I haven't said to you yet, but has gone through my mind many times, is have you introduced them to A Quiet Place? So that's funny you should say that, because the next one on the docket, probably tonight actually, is A Quiet Place. I suggest we do A Quiet Place right away, because it's a new one. That's great, because then she can listen to our podcast review this Friday. I'm looking forward to it. This show has taken forever. Boy, I, mean, I guess this is that's the point. October is just about doing what we thought we were going to do 18 months ago. But man, yeah, it's been a long time coming. We finally get to cover A Quiet Place. Can't wait. Hope you can join us for Platinum Level. Looking forward to hearing that show, guys. It's going to be a good one. It's a great movie, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about it. So if you want to hear our Quiet Place review, we're doing Quiet Place this Friday, Quiet Place 2 next Friday, and then a few weeks after that, Bird Box. That is our Platinum Level Fall 2021 donation drive. Head to the all-new, all-pretty NowPlayingPodcast.com. Click the support tab at the top and you'll see you can support through Patreon, you can support through Podbean, you can still make a direct donation to us for a donation drive using PayPal. There's a lot of ways you can hear these shows and we spell it all out on our website. And if you have any questions about it, please feel free to drop us an email at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. We're an independent podcast that relies solely on crowdfunding in order to keep going. And so we want to be there for you the way our listeners have been there for us. Thank you both. I had a really great time talking Bond this time. I really enjoy that we've taken this Craig journey together, but I can promise everyone listening right now, now playing, we'll return. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find reviews of every installment in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Kingsman, The Secret Service, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond retrospective series is edited by Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Do you want a clean kill or do you want to send a message? Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Damn, why is Police Academy a fuck? I don't know. I mean, that's really problematic. I think therapy is needed. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, the podcast and this way. I'm going to be. <laughs> I'll be damned. It fits. Michael Winslow. <laughs> All right. Anyway. I think this is Brock telling us he finally wants to do the Police Academy retrospective, Stuart. Oh, I think my you God. should schedule it. Don't move, dirtbags. We're going to be doing Police Academy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That just came out of the 80s like a bullet. Just hit me. Just like, oh, shit. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah. If they reboot that, they better be loyal to that Hooks character. I'm going to be really pissed. Wow. I right. really haven't thought about that in a long time. Thank you, guys. Now I've got that. Your theme song in my head. I don't know if I could do the Police Academy theme song. Okay. We got the blooper out of the way early. Yeah. Sorry about that. I'm just a little giddy. Here we go. Did I say that right, Leah Sadu? I say Sado, but I mean Sadu and Sado is. You say Sadu and I say Sado. Yeah, I think exactly right. Yeah. Safin ordered Obertrev to modify Safin ordered Obertrev Obruchev Obru Obruchev ordered Obruchev ordered Obruchev that's hard to say
Well, Triple X was supposed to be his equal, but we can, we talked about that show already, so we already had that conversation. Uh, you, Vin Diesel was in a Bond film? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome if he was the Bond babe? <laughs> oh, you think you're the only 007? Like, they'd retire that shirt when you no longer have it? You know, that was my thinking, was a sports metaphor. Because you guys know me, and I'm just always about the sports. <laughs> always going to the, going to the game. <laughs> You are a big sportsman. <laughs> Saffron is a mo- villain who, if there was a motivation in... The- Saffron is a spice. Saffron is a villain. <laughs> We're going to be baking next time. <laughs> there was a Bond girl named Saffron, though, wasn't there? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, no. I'm thinking of the actress Saffron Burroughs from Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> All right. She's not a Bond girl for sure. Yeah, I mean... 